You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 540. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at former APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 13th of October, 2022. Today's episode, a Boeing 737 with no passengers takes off from Finland with a throttle set too low. The front tires collapse on a different 737 landing in France. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, higher, faster. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 540 is ready to push back. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-new station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. Welcome to the uh, 737 Crash Show, apparently. An aviation podcast (laughs) covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, the pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA, and joining us from his studio... Professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. It's right there. Yeah, I'm feeling a bit um, um, as if I've lost a bit of weight this week. (laughs) Jeff? Disembodied. Yeah, Yeah, disembodied, yeah. Yeah, you're looking thinner than normal. Yeah, I I think so, yes. Okay. Well, also joining us. Hey! Hey! Guess what? From his home studio in the air capital, low and slow pilot, old airplane enthusiast and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, it's our friend, your friend, Nick Camacho, Macho Man. Hey, Jeff. Happy to be back with everybody. You sure? Yep. You don't sound like it. (laughs) All right. And also, a place to stand, place to grow. Yes. From her studio in Toronto. Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. How's everybody doing? We're all doing well. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Well. Have a good one, guys. Thanks, Liz. Cheers, Liz. And let's go right to the news. Stand by for news. A Jet 2 Boeing 737-800 registration Golf Joliet Zulu Hotel Lima performing flight 2152 from Kusamo, Finland. I don't know. To Kusamo? Oh, uh, uh, Kokomo. No, it's Kokomo. Uh, to uh, <laughs> yeah. London Stansted. Nice try. 
Yeah, with no passengers and six crew, was departing Kusamo's runway 12, 12, and became airborne just 400 meters, 1,400 feet short of the runway end, climbed out very slowly. Subsequently, the crew discovered they had left the thrust levers at engine run-up power, 70% M1, rather than takeoff power, and corrected the power setting. The aircraft continued to standstead without further incident. The English AAIB Air Accidents Investigation Board was delegated the investigation by Finland's, oh my, on yeah, this is a good one. And, Nailed it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> I know. And released their final report, concluding the probable causes of the serious incident were the aircraft took off with insufficient thrust set because the toga button was not pressed. Toga! It was not pressed because the co-pilot was startled by the aircraft moving as he commenced the run the run up against the brakes. The aircraft started to move because insufficient brake pressure was applied. Human checks designed to detect the insufficient thrust were ineffective because both pilots were attending to other tasks. The commander was responding to a radio call from the FISO, which is the Flight Information Service Officer, during the start of the takeoff roll. Neither pilot detected the low thrust until after the aircraft was airborne. Um, and now it goes into its analysis here. So basically, they uh, they they flew up from Stansted and they were going to fly back and uh, they were essentially empty. That's why uh, Radio Roger mentioned that there were no passengers on this. So it was just the crew, uh, the uh, pilots and the flight attendants. Um, and they briefed, you know, what what they were going to do because, you know, it was cold. It's Finland and it was cold and they were going to do a, a run up for 30 seconds at 70% N1 while, you know, holding the brakes. So what we call a static uh, takeoff or a standing takeoff. And they uh, started to accomplish that. And apparently the co-pilot um, did not have enough pressure on the uh, tow brakes to keep the airplane from sliding. It turns out that um, during a uh, some simulator training after the incident, they put him in there and the co-pilot discovered the brake pedals had significantly more travel than he had ever been using. So that was kind of a learning experience for Interesting. him. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's light and, you know, we all know this, uh, you know, you, you fly an airplane and you, uh, and it's very much lighter than normal. Um, when you push up the power, you know, that the airplane wants to, you know, really spring into action. And, uh, so that's what happened here. And then he kind of got a little startled by the fact that the thing was moving and he, he thought he had sufficient brake pressure and that something else was wrong. Um, and but no, it was just the insufficient brake pressure. And then, as it mentions, just not too many seconds after they started the takeoff roll, about six per, uh, six knots, I think, uh, airspeed, uh, they got that call from the uh, flight inf uh, flight information service officer. Uh, and I was wondering what what is that all about? You know, uh, I guess the air traffic control, the tower people, the regular air traffic controllers, go home at a certain point. And they leave uh, a FISO there to kind of run things and in, in, in a sort of unofficial way. And so she was up there and she could see the airplane kind of starting to roll for takeoff. And then she was kind of concerned because the airspace uh, where this airport is, I guess it's very close to the Russian border uh, oh. through uh, St. Petersburg. And the, the uh, runway is situated uh, one to 120 degree um, heading. 
and uh, I, I guess uh, the the uh, rules of uh, the air or something like that. I forgot exactly what they called it uh, in Finland. Say that anytime you come in for landing or you take off after uh, you, you turn, always to the left. So coming in for landing, you should always turn to the left, and then taking off, you always turn to the left. Well, in this case, you need to turn to the right because if you turn to the left, then you could possibly get pretty close to the warning areas and the restricted areas and, you know, and the, uh, the country of Russia, which is not good. And so the crew had already briefed the fact that their first waypoint is to the South of them. And it was going to obviously be a right-hand turn, but because they didn't state it specifically on the radio when they were, before they took off this, uh, uh, concerned uh, that, uh, they were going to turn the wrong direction. So that's why that call was made, even though they're, their uh, regulations say that they are not supposed to make any radio transmissions uh, when the uh, flight is taking off or when they're on short final or on landing roll. But she considered it, it was important enough that she get the confirmation that they weren't going to turn left. <sighs> so uh, that was a major distraction for the captain. So the the automatic or not the automatic the standard operating procedure of I think every airline out there. Is that you know you make a cross check when the uh, you know at a certain point to make sure that the power is set and the engines are producing the amount of thrust that they are supposed to. In my company, we put we you know when we call for um, we we go to a run up setting, which is about because uh, since we're using an engine that uses exhaust pressure ratio EPR uh, settings, about one point two EPR on both engines. And then we engage the auto throttle system and then, or in this case for, you know, the 737, it would be the toga button. Uh, and then the throttles go forward to whatever the takeoff setting is supposed to be. In our case, it's usually uh, for reduced thrust takeoffs around 1.4. Um, now, because the engines on this jet were using uh, N1 as their uh, reference for takeoff power, uh, I think that their calculated takeoff setting was supposed to be 89%, I believe. So they left it at 70%. But I think that, you know, the uh, if they if the captain had done the check, uh, he probably would have noticed that the, um, if you'll go to the one right before that. Yeah, the one that was just done. Yeah, there. that one right there. You can see that uh, you, you, you have these little target EPR or uh, N1 bugs. Uh, the the little green um, arrows, that's where the where the needles should be for takeoff setting eighty nine percent in this case, and the uh, on the lower right you can see that that's where the needles were actually at seventy point one percent, and uh, so that and and you'd think that it's not that much difference, but up in that range of RPM. Going between seventy and eighty-nine percent is a pretty big, pretty big jump uh, in power. And uh, anyway, so I'll I'll stop talking because that, that's basically the what what happened here. They they just got distracted and didn't ensure that the the power was set properly. Fortunately for them, the runway was long enough. They had just enough performance to uh, re, you know get airborne before the end of the runway. They did do some analysis though that said that. If they had lost an engine, that they would not have had enough performance to get airborne, you know, if they'd lost one at V1 or later. So that's why um, the 
investigation took place to uh, kind of, you know, uh, emphasize the fact that this was a, this was a big deal. Oh, absolutely, Jeff. I mean, we needed three Funyuns to line up for this uh, yeah. uh, incident to occur. Uh, we needed the air trafficker to make an inappropriate call, which she knew she wasn't supposed to. There would have been plenty of time after takeoff, particularly if she'd seen their left wing dip as they started a left turn. She could have corrected them at that point, um, but uh, she chose to correct them just as they were starting their takeoff roll. Got the... Um, I guess a relatively junior uh, first uh, officer, I'm not absolutely certain really uh, as to uh, everything that he's involved with with regard to the flying controls. I mean, um, perhaps, yeah, they say they, the first officers don't uh, taxi very often. Well, this is a good reason to let them do more taxiing, if that's appropriate. If they've got a tiller, they may not have a tiller, I don't know. But... Um, you know, on, on the Airbus, for example, uh, we use auto brake a lot. But if the auto brake's not there, uh, or if you're doing a rejected takeoff and the auto brake kicks out, you have to use manual brakes, and you get very used to in the sim doing manual brake rejected takeoff. So you you really do understand the the uh, uh, brake pedal travel required to reach full application. So perhaps that's something they should have included in their simulator training. Uh, and then um, the captain um, didn't obey that critical uh, order of priority of events. You know, aviate comes above communicate. So he's got he's to have his priorities right. Just because the air traffic controller, the, the FISDA, uh, FISO, said something, he doesn't have to reply until he's made those safety critical checks that the engines are operating at the correct power level. Uh, and also, um, surprisingly, unlike all the Airbus procedures, they don't seem to have a standard call-out of the uh, FMA, the flight management um, systems that are there, whereas uh, in the Airbus, it's drilled into everyone that those are called whenever, whenever there's a, a change. And uh, had those been read out, as we do, and, and you know, it's a bit of mouth music as we start the takeoff roll in the Airbus, as you uh, stabilize the power and then select the right power and then read the FMA, it's uh, it's you know four columns to be read out, including the uh, and then the captain has to confirm that the thrust is set, and all that happens in those first few seconds of the takeoff roll, and none of that happened in this, and perhaps it's time for this company or this aircraft pilots on this aircraft type to adopt. Uh, more rigid SOPs to ensure that this can't happen again. At my company, I think I was starting to tell you what we do. We set the, you know, the the power, um, the run up power setting, um, and then we hit. In our case, it says uh, auto flight, but that engages the auto throttle system, not the full auto autopilot. It's kind of weird uh, nomenclature, but that turns on the auto throttles when we're on the ground on the takeoff roll, and that at it's very quiet until eighty knots when the uh, person, the pilot monitoring, uh, checks to make sure that 80 knots is on both sides and that the, uh, the setting is called clamp, which is, it means that uh, now the auto throttles are not working the throttles anymore. And it's just going to leave the thrust levers where they are at that point. And then you also confirm looking at the N1 that it's producing 
the appropriate amount of N1 RPM and the, the engine's producing the amount of power it's supposed to. So that's the only call we make. We don't make any in, on the takeoff roll. We don't say anything about the uh, FMA display on on the uh, 717. And I don't believe that's a, that's a policy on the, on the, on the Boeing's. By the way, um, Caesar in the uh, chat room says, does the 737 not engage Toga prior to takeoff roll? Uh, well, in this case, again, um, the final report talks about the fact that because of the weather conditions they needed to do and de-icing procedure and everything else, they needed to do a static run-up of the engines for 30 seconds. That's a long time, 30 seconds before they actually released the brakes and started their takeoff roll, at which point they would have hit the toga button. So this was something that they were they were adhering to their cold weather policy to do this. But when it started sliding because the co-pilot was not putting in sufficient brake pressure on the uh, tow brakes, the thing started moving. And then they had briefed, by the way, beforehand, if for some reason the airplane started sliding or moving before that 30 seconds, they would go ahead and just release the brakes and just initiate the takeoff roll. So they had already kind of briefed a, a scenario where this might happen. Um, and I think it just happened a lot faster than, and not only was it moving forward, but I think it was moving to the side as well. So, um, that, you know, there was a lot of distraction going on there. So I don't think that, you know, the, the comment about not pressing the toga switches, um, it just wasn't, in this case, the right time to hit the toga button because you wouldn't want to hit toga switches and then hold it there for 30 seconds. <laughs> that would not work out well at all. So, um, yeah. But they didn't end up in Russia. That's they did good. not end up in Russia. Good point. Yes. Um, let's see. What else? Anyway, the, the final report does, it was very, very thorough, goes through a lot of the human factors that were involved here. And uh, as you said, Nick, uh, even if she had made the uh, inappropriate radio communication, there is no need for the captain or the pilot monitoring to actually answer the radio call. In fact, it's uh, kind of almost a routine thing here in the U.S. where they might give us instructions on our landing roll and they can do that, but we do not have to acknowledge them because that's kind of a busy time when you're trying to transition from flight to, you know, being on the ground and getting the airplane slowed down and, you know, off the runway and, you know, in a safe way on, on the taxiway. So, you know, there's no reason for or requirement for us to answer a radio call here in the U.S. if it was if it was made during the landing roll. I'm curious, uh, something we should ask Rick uh, next time he's on, would his 20 seconds to 80 knots have worked in this case. I'm curious to know. So I have, a, I do have a question, but after reading this and then also hearing of um, um, an anecdotal story about um, setting or timing from, well, I'm not sure where it starts. Is it from brake release or is it the application of the thrust to takeoff thrust or when t the thrust is actually at takeoff thrust? When does the timing start? I need to, get a clarification from Miami Rick because he talks about that a lot, that he does an acceleration check. And one of the reasons for an abort uh, or a rejected takeoff at my company is like abnormally slow acceleration. But my company doesn't go into detail what that means. It's just more of a, I guess, a feeling like eh, it just doesn't feel like it's accelerating the way it should. But it's feelings. not like a thing where you, you, you know, start the timing at this point and you should be at this speed by this amount of time. And Rick has mentioned, you know, 20 uh, seconds, you should be at 80 knots or, or better. And so 
after hearing that anecdotal story from Rick very recently, and also this story here, I thought, I need to remember to try to do that. And so on this trip, I I mentioned to my first officer, Brent, uh, this whole thing going on. And I said, let's try to remember to do this. And for our airplane, and we were hitting the uh, the, uh, stopwatch at, excuse me, at, I need to clear my throat with some beer, I think. (laughs) Any excuse. Self-medicating, self-medicating. I'm (laughs) self-medicating, yes. the uh, so we were basically break release or doing a rolling takeoff when the power was being um, moved. The thrust levers were moving forward, and we started the timing. And each case that we did it, it was like eighty knots was just shy of twenty seconds. So I'm thinking, I wonder, oh, really? is this like a standard? And again, every time we did this was at a, it was at a reduced uh, or assumed temperature uh, setting, not full power. And I'm thinking, I'm wondering if it has. You, if you have to adjust the timing or the speed or both based on the type of airplane you're flying, I don't know if that's a factor or not. Jeff, you need to pause uh, a minute. Steffi needs a code from you. I, I was curious, oh. how often do your guys' eyes go to the engine gauges after you? Think, remember what that question is right there, Nick Camacho, um, because uh, Steph needs me to send her a code so she can get on. I'm going to answer that from my perspective. Wait, no, don't answer that, yet, Jeff? though, because... Oh, okay. We want to hear we're, it. We're, he, he, wants, he wants to. We're pausing. Taking a pause. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just remember your question, Nick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, let me uh, do this. Um, By the way, uh, Caesar uh, says in the military they have toga engaged prior to entering the runway. If you did that in an Airbus, <laughs> that would be very exciting. <laughs> you, yeah, you'd be on the side of the runway yeah. with toga set. It would be a, a yeah. What if you have to, Caesar? What if you have to do like a, a run up for like uh, engine icing and that kind of thing? I'd, you, you, that wouldn't work. I don't know. Uh, let's see. Streamyard. Hey, my friends at Streamyard uh, sent email. me an email. I'm adjusting you the timing. Just FYI. Yeah, I do. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I don't really know them. <laughs> the only friends I have. Thanks, Liz. <laughs> The only true friends that I have that really care about me and send me emails and say, yeah, hey, how you are doing, Jeff? Them too. That's <laughs> well, not I true. Do, I do pay them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Here we go. Now. Caesar, what is it you fly, old chap? I think he said he flies the 7-3 for the military. Oh, does he? Oh, okay. What or maybe he, he just said he flies for the military. Let me look here. Okay, we don't have auto throttles engaged until after run up. Okay, so that's exactly what they were doing. Oh, C seventeen. Okay. Oh, that's a bit different. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, it's it's there neat, she is. neat looking airplane. Miss America. I had to go in the simulator. I did not fly it very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. There was, it was but just, there's a completely different way. Oh, I know. Of we were flying both, it. I got had, so confused. Had it not been for. Uh, Admiral Rick, or what, what? What's his rank now? General Rick. Oh, I, um, I think he's to uh, be, being he's there. At least and, a commodore. A commodore, <laughs> telling us how to um, how to do it. Uh, yeah, it would have been difficult because I, I think both Nick and I, every time like we got a little bit high on the on the slope, you know, we'd start pushing the nose forward and go, nope, nope, leave that nose up there on that. What do they call it? The pipper or pip? 
or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I, I found the concept confusing. I'm sure with a little bit of time, but there mm. you, go. you can't hear us. Oh, oh, oh! Somebody's mic also, sounds horrible. Yeah, and I hear like a telephone sound, um, cell phone yeah, sound. That's what too. I was hearing too. But it, it went away when Steph went away. Yeah, I'm not pointing Put any the fingers. Thing on the thing. <laughs> I'm pointing fingers. Nice one. Oh, she decided just to forget it. Yeah, she's, she's just like, leaving. Yeah, she's yeah, left. I, wow. I think she's yeah. rebooting. Just put the thing on the thing. On the thing. The yeah, thing exactly. on the thing. That was that was what I was trying <laughs> to do. Yeah. Hey, that's that could be a title. I'm no good at that, obviously. <laughs> that could be a title, Liz. Put the just put the thing on the thing. <laughs> that gives it free. Oh no, you're it's you. Gives you free reign for everything. Anything. Yeah. Anything. I'm not as clever as Nick, though. <laughs> Says who? That you start that. <laughs> Um, well, I'll tell you what, do you think, should we wait for staff or should we just go ahead and keep I on think going? Just and, keep going. Keep okay. going. So well, we can finish this one off. Yeah. Do you remember uh, what you, what your question was there, there, Nick? Uh, come on. Uh, yes, I do. Okay. Uh, I was curious. Oh, sorry. I was curious, uh, how often your guys' eyes go to the engine gauges throughout the course of the takeoff procedure? Uh, I mean, obviously, when you guys set takeoff power, you said you're looking for what the N1 or, or what your power setting goes to. Are you cross-checking that? I mean, 20 seconds seems like a long time to be rolling down the runway and uh, not look without checking that. the gauges. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, ha I have to agree. Uh, if I was pilot monitoring, I used to watch them fairly closely. Uh, because uh, particularly if I had a good FO and I did need to monitor his track down the runway quite as closely as I might have with someone I didn't know at all. Um, but if I was pilot flying, I would probably glance down three or four times. But to be fair, there's quite a row of gauges and they're all indicating the same. Often what you're looking for is a mismatch mm -hmm. uh, in the needles, uh, but they had both needles pointed to the same place. Mm -hmm. So no, <laughs> they were both in error. So it might not have been quite so easy to pick up. But um, one thing I would definitely check is uh, N1 against uh, the Flex N1 that we were expecting because they're written beside each other. One's in a box and one's on the gauge with a numerical and a needle um, indication. So, uh, you know, it's an easy glance just to make sure they've all reached the required M1. And we'll actually, you know, we all know how important it is because if you don't do it, you could end up just trundling off the end of the runway, which would be very embarrassing. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah there are a lot oh, of things. Oh, and of course, the airplane would tell you. Yeah. Sorry, Jeff. There, I was going to say, uh, as Nick just mentioned, the, there are a lot of things that you're looking at, um, especially when you're the pilot flying. The pilot monitoring has a little bit more um, responsibility, I think, and, and opportunity to look more closely at all the engine instrumentation and um, airspeed and, you know, all the all the things that are critical there when the, the pilot flying is mostly making sure that the airplane is, you know, tracking straight down the runway and making changes for crosswind and that kind of thing, but also uh, kind of looking in and double checking to make sure everything's set properly. So, yeah. Um, I it's, it, you know, it just seems a little, obviously seems a little foreign to me because mm -hmm. I fly in a completely different environment. But, you know, when I go to take off and I put full power on the airplane, I'm looking at all the gauges, 
because for one thing, I'm not rolling fast enough to get in trouble quickly. Mm-hmm. So I put power to it and I'm looking at the three main ones, fuel pressure, manifold pressure, and RPM to make sure the engine's making power. Mm-hmm. And I take a quick glance at the health indications, right? Oil temperature, oil pressure, and cylinder head temperature. And then um, before I rotate, I just take a quick glance just at the power instruments to make sure the engine's making full power. And then again, after I've rotated, right before I put the gear up, just just because if the airplane's not making full power, that's the only thing that's going to get me in trouble right away. Um, obviously, it's different for you guys because you have two engines and you have two people in the cockpit. Um, but it's also a little weird for me to it's also a little weird for me to contemplate somebody being type rated in an airplane and not have a good understanding of how much brake pressure he needs to use. Yeah, that so. is kind of a, an odd <laughs> one there. Um, yeah, I have to I have to agree. Uh, and uh, I wanted I threw this uh, this graph up here, the flight data recorder um, readout of uh, some of the parameters here. And so, you know, we were just discussing that um, acceleration check. And I think if I cor- if I correctly analyze this, I know it's kind of hard to see on the video, uh, but the from brake release to the point at which they were at 80 knots was 40 seconds. If I did my math correctly. So that's like that's double wow. the time. That's that, good. that is so long to be on the runway. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an age. Yeah. I mean, particularly their lightweight. You'd be expecting right. the airplane Just to leap off. jump off the ground like a startled rabbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you'd, you'd probably brief that empty airplane uh, it's gonna. Everything's gonna happen a bit quicker, so let's just be prepared. Let's not overstress the flaps of the gear by delaying, and be prepared to pitch the nose up a bit higher than you might yep. otherwise. It's sort of the standard things you would cover if you were doing uh, a, a completely empty takeoff, because you're not probably not used to that. Uh, yeah. And the fact that it took so long to get to eighty knots, some yeah, wow. Yeah, I think I, I hope that we're gonna have further discussion on this whole acceleration check thing, because I do want to start incorporating that in my own personal uh, routine. And uh, it's just, you know, I have to do it a few more times to kind of just automatically do it because we've talked about it so many times. And every time I hear Rick talking about it and, and Captain Nick, I'm thinking, Oh yeah, I should probably do that. And then I completely forget about it. And so, because Brent was engaged as well as I, um, we were able to remind each other uh, that, uh, that was uh, something we were going to try to do. And looky here. Looky here, looky here. Yay. Yay. It's, uh, let's see. She's a doctor. She's a marathon runner. She has all kinds of wonderful attributes associated <laughs> with her. <laughs> but I could That's say. Fine. That's plenty. Yeah. Yeah. That's Dr. Scott Ever, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper. It's Dr. Steph. Hey. Yeah, no, mostly all I've done (laughs) recently is run marathons. So that was fine. You could just stop at that. So, um, yeah, glad to finally be here. Sorry, I was a little tardy this evening. Um, Gosh, it seems like I haven't seen you guys in a long time, except I've seen some of you recently. (laughs) Well, yeah. So Liz, yes. I think we're going Um, to. Yeah, not me. You haven't seen me. I'm sorry. I have not seen you. Or Nick Camacho. I'm sorry. Haven't you seen you in person? I was even on the West Coast for like. 30 minutes, making a connection in Atlanta. Oh, the East Coast. East Coast. East Coast. Yes. Uh, oh, you got as close as Atlanta. Oh, man. Yeah. It's close. I know. But um, yeah, made it. Sorry, I had a little bit of, um, apparently when you don't 
you know, use your computer for a while or any of these microphones and things, they just decide not to work anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, well, and it was mostly that like I, I, the first time I logged in, I just couldn't hear anything. And it wasn't that my headphones weren't working or my speakers weren't working. That all worked fine on the computer. I just couldn't hear anything from this program. So oh. um, the old shut everything down, turn it off, turn it back on, reboot trick seems to have worked again. Blow, blow all the dust Ooh. off. Thank my IT department for that <laughs> handy uh, advice. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, great to have you with us, Steph. We can't wait to get all caught up in the uh, getting to know us segment, which I'm sure is going to be pretty much taken up 90% of it by you. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I think I can condense most of it. Uh, we'll see. We'll, see. We, well we want to hear. We want it to we be we detailed. Okay. Uh, so we were uh, talking about uh, item one, and I think uh, we beat the beaten that one to death. The horse, uh, yeah, the beat dead horse. The hell out of that one. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so let's move on to this next one. Uh, this is a Transavia or Transavia, France, Boeing 737-800, registration Foxtrot Golf Zulu Hotel Alpha performing flight 3943 from Dejerba. Or Jerba, I don't know if the D is silent or not. Tunisia, yeah, I think to Jerba. Nantes, France. I don't know. Nantes. 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 Oh, darn it! Should have asked before I started the recording. Nantes, France, with 160 people on board, landed on Nantes runway 221 at uh, 1305 local time when both nose tires were damaged, causing the aircraft to roll out on the nose wheel rims. Hmm. The aircraft vacated the runway and stopped in the taxiway clear of the runway. There were no injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage, uh, structural damage. However, the BEA has opened an, an investigation. On October 7th, 2022, the BEA reported the aircraft received substantial damage to the nose gear, fuselage, and engines. Oh, and engines. The occurrence was rated an accident and is being investigated by the BEA. Uh, so the conditions at the time, the METAR, uh, anywhere from 600 overcast to 800 overcast, uh, temperature 18, dew point 18 or dew point uh, 17 and so misty, foggy, misty, foggy, low ceilings, um, coming in and, you know, it's just like you break out kind of just before, you know, you see the runway and then before you know it. You're, uh, you're flaring to land on the runway. And the picture, uh, that first one, Liz, if you'll show that yep. again. So yes, not only did they hit so hard to you know, basically just make all the tires come off the rims, but if you notice right below that- uh, Looks a little wrinkly. Access door. Yes, wrinkly. That's never a good sign. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not a good sign on people, but it's um, really- unless it's, a, unless it's a B-52. Yeah, well, then right, that's, that's normal. Fine, then. That's about the right spot <laughs> for yeah, all the wrinkles exactly. on a B-52. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. There are a lot of wrinkles on an airplane. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I, it's it looks to me, you know, I'm not a- uh, Well, I mean, I'm a trained accident investigator for you know, a long, long time ago, but- I don't think it takes a trained accident investigator to say, I think they just slammed the nose wheel down way too hard. And that's what popped the wheels and caused the uh, structural damage. I'm not sure about the engines. I mean, it, did it did it like make it go down so low that it actually scraped the nacelles? It doesn't really go into a lot of detail about. I don't know. You only have one picture damage. kind of with the engine in the uh, corner of the picture background and it looks doesn't look unusual. Yeah, it's yeah. got a flat bottom, so they must have oh. worn off the whole bottom of those <laughs> engines. <laughs> yeah, good point. 
For those of you no, who I'm may sure. not actually know, it's a 737. Yeah, it's supposed to look like that. Yeah. Although so when they first came out uh, with those really odd looking, uh, odd, oddly shaped nacelles, yeah. I mean, everybody looked at them like, whoa, some, something's <laughs> wrong there. I mean, it yeah. doesn't look right at all. Just like the uh, mad dog taxiing around, everybody thought we had chocks stuck to our nose wheel. But it's actually the spray deflector on the nose wheel up there. It does look like a chalk. That reminds me of the joke about rugby. Uh-oh. Okay. A, Care to enlighten us? Is it dirty? It's I'm, a game played by men with oddly shaped balls. Mm. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so uh, l- uh, looking, on. looking at the uh, data for the runway, it's not a short runway, 9,514 feet. That's a standard length. Runway, especially for for landing, um, the landing runways in uh, Atlanta are just nine thousand feet long. So it's not like it was a short runway. But uh, as, as Steph was mentioning, kind of misty, low ceilings uh, might have given them maybe a visual illusion, and uh, just you know waited too long to flare. I don't know. That's all the information we have at this point. Who knows? I'm sure we'll find out more. That'll be fun. Yeah. Follow up. Yep, we'll follow up on the investigation for sure. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Uh, 1C, Virgin Atlantic said on Wednesday that it would not resume flights between London and Hong Kong after the Chinese territory significantly eased pandemic era, era border restrictions last late last month. In an internal memo, Virgin Atlantic's chief commercial officer, Zhuha Javanin, told staffers that the decision to abandon the once popular Asian city was made after carefully considering the impact of the closure of Russian airspace and the threat of quarantine restrictions being reimposed at short notice. Uh, Jarvanen also cited a decision by its partner Virgin Australia to permanently cease long-haul operations as feeding into Virgin Atlantic's own decision-making. Virgin Australia once acted as a code-share partner for Virgin Atlantic, transporting passengers onwards from Hong Kong to Australia. The airline also says it's facing stiff competition from rivals, including British Airways and Cathay Pacific. While this route is very popular with our people and customers, it has been on a trend of declining profitability for some time, even before the pandemic. Looking ahead, we foresee numerous hurdles that would prevent us re- from returning to profitable operations, most notably significantly longer flight times due to the Russian airspace closures, uncertainty around the recovery of corporate and leisure travel between the UK and Hong Kong, further uncertainty over COVID restrictions and quarantines, a tough competitive environment without a local airline partner, and the loss of important connections to Australia since Virgin Australia stopped their flights to Hong Kong. Uh, the, the decision not to resume flights and close its office in Hong Kong will affect uh, around 40 local employees. Um, pandemic Virgin uh, Atlantic continued to operate freight-only services between the UK and Hong Kong, transporting tons of medical-grade personnel, protective personal protective equipment to be used on the front line in the fight against COVID-19. The airline also tried to offer passenger services, but Hong Kong's strict pandemic rules saw the airline eventually pull out of the territory after the risk of pilots and cabin crew being imprisoned for weeks on end in quarantine facilities. And that just, uh, that, that fact just, just became just undoable for them. Uh, they suspended services to Hong Kong in December of 2021 
after uh, it managed to rescue a quarantine crew member with the help of senior diplomats in time for Christmas. It has not returned to the territory since. Other airlines are cautiously making plans to return to Hong Kong after the territory lifted quarantine arrangements for most inbound travelers. British Airways is planning to resume service in December, while United is uh, eyeing a January 2023 return to the city. Uh, So, Captain Nick, I think you know a little bit more about some of the conditions uh, for the uh, air crews. And of course, Hong Kong Nigel uh, really, you know, has his finger on that pulse as well. They, the, the conditions for these crew members were, was horrible uh, and just yeah. unmanageable. Well, that's exactly right. They, the Ch- Chinese government imposed very uh, draconian rules uh, concerning the uh, amount of time that you would be isolated uh between uh, landing and uh, getting in and getting out again, and also, of course, if you, uh, if a- anyone on your aircraft, not even you know you, had uh, indicated um, positive for COVID, then uh, you know you could be carted off and put in a pile of uh, a quarantine. Uh, they were like cargo containers with a bed and a chair in it, you know, and more or less locked in for weeks on end. So uh, there have been some pretty uh, um, awful situations that uh, some of the crew have got into. And, um, you know, an airline like Virgin with, you know, much lower staffing levels than some airlines can't afford to lose an aircraft full of personnel for very long. Uh, And, you know, it was always a a worry. Uh, I suspect it's more the fact that uh, there are more profitable routes. Virgin has always um, suffered from lack of takeoff slots out of Heathrow in particular. So, um, you know, when you've got an unprofitable route like, um, you know, Hong Kong has been over the last few years, um, you know, it's it's very tempting to shift it, say, to a, a, a new American route. Uh, because uh, you know you you <laughs> you might make more money going to America than you will going to Hong Kong, particularly with all these additional good reasons why it's a difficult place to uh, fly through at the moment. Um, I, nothing to stop them going back there, but uh, of course you know the, you can't keep personnel on the payroll if you're not going to fly there um, much. Uh, very sad from. Um, some of our long-term Virgin uh, staff over there, uh, Amy, who was the most fabulous station manager uh, over there, has been with the company for years and um, has done a fantastic job, one of the most wonderful uh, uh, employees you can imagine if you needed a hand getting in and out of uh, Hong Kong. She was just wonderful and, uh, you know, she was an incredibly enthusiastic and energetic uh, lady who used to uh, get everything fixed. Uh, she was <laughs> quite a wonder um, and, and I knew her well. She's, of course, lost her job along with uh, all her colleagues who were permanently based there, some of the cabin crew who were permanently based there and worked for the airline for years. So very sad. Um, you know, I was flying into Hong Kong with Virgin within a few weeks of coming online and um, continue throughout my entire career. And it was always one of my favorite destinations. So I, I, they're very sad, um, very sad indeed. 
Of course, they say stiff competition from their rivals, BA and Cathay. Well, they've always had stiff competition from BA and Cathay because they are, you know, two of the major airlines which fly Hong Kong, London. So, uh, but that so that situation hasn't really changed. But uh, so I see a certain amount of. Oh yes, you know we. It's very hard route, but other airlines are managing it. So I'm going really. But if I, you know, it's it's a commercial decision. If you see money being uh, made better going somewhere else, then you've really got to uh, stay on your toes and move your routes around. Yeah, it sounds like one of those things that will probably change in the future. Is you know, I would like to think so when when it comes profitable again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because it is a fantastic place to go sure. visit and a perfect stopping off spot on your way to Australia. So, yeah, I can see why you're not being able to link up to Virgin Australia anymore uh, was a problem. But um, there you go. Uh, you know, things change. Yeah. Very good. Next item. The Indian Air Force scrambled fighter jets to intercept an Iranian passenger jet after a bomb threat was made against the flight. but. Uh, the pilots said that they were unwilling to land, and after circling close to New Delhi for a short time, the flight carried on as normal. The airline involved in Monday morning's incident was not named by the IAF, but a Mahan Air, is that right? Mahan? Mahan, I think, yeah. Uh, air yeah, passenger jet right. flying from Tehran to Guangzhou, China. Guangzhou, yeah. Guangzhou. Uh, was flying through Indian airspace at the time the fighter jets were scrambled. The 18-year-old Airbus A340 aircraft went into a holding pattern to the west of New Delhi and circled three times before continuing to Guangzhou, according to data provided by Flight Radar 24. The IAF says it scrambled fighter jets to intercept the aircraft after a bomb threat was received while over Indian airspace. The pilots initially requested the option to divert to Delhi Airport, but the IAF declined that request. Instead, two other diversion airports close by were suggested, but both were rejected by the pilots. Short time later, the the pilots were advised by officials in Tehran to disregard the bomb threat and continue the flight as normal. Uh, This is a quote from the Indian Air Force. On 3 October, uh, intimation was received of a bomb scare on an airline bearing Iranian registration when it was transiting through Indian airspace. IAF fighter aircraft were scrambled, which followed the aircraft at a safe distance. Aircraft was offered the option to land at Jaipur and then Chandigarh, but pilot declared his unwillingness to divert to either of them. After a while, an intimation was received from Tehran to disregard the bomb scare. Aircraft continued on its journey towards final destination. Pretty much sounds like what I just said before in the in the previous paragraphs. Anyway, uh, bomb threats are an occupational hazard of running an international airline and domestic airline as well. And inter- internal airline security teams routinely work alongside various government agencies to assess whether these threats should be taken seriously. In the vast majority of cases, bomb threats aren't assessed by or to be serious and flights continue as normal. In many cases, without the pilots even being informed about the threat. Yeah, we prefer it that way. We'd rather not. Um, In 2021, uh, Belarusian uh, officials called in a fake bomb threat against Orion Air Flight so as to force the plane to land in Minsk. The hoax was part of an elaborate ploy to arrest a dissident journalist who had happened to be a passenger on the flight from Athens to Vilnius. 
In that incident, it was Ryanair's standard procedure to continue the flight as normal to Lithuania, but Minsk air traffic control managed to convince the pilots to ignore protocol and land in Belarus. <laughs> Oops. Oopsie. Yeah, it was not a not a good outcome for the uh, dissident journalist no. that was on board. No. Probably they heard. certainly won't be trusted next time. No. Either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I think uh, this all had to do with the, th- the, the fact that it was an Airbus A340. No, it had nothing to do with the, <laughs> the type of airplane. <laughs> oh, almost certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, uh, you don't know who was, I mean, maybe there was, again, some type of, um, maybe there was a specific passenger on board that they were trying to corral into a certain location no. or, I, you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Or yeah. it was just some, you know. Conspiracy theory. I'm wondering if that was the reason why the pilot said, nope, uh, we don't want to land at those two places that you suggested we land. Yeah, we want to go. And if we, want if to we go need this to divert, place. we want to go to the place that we choose. Right. And why would the and why would the country say, no, we don't want you to land in Delhi? You know, um, I guess if there's a bomb on board the aircraft, you well, don't want to end up in a very large. Uh, <laughs> these other two places are also less large. important to us. They're, they are less important to us. The people there are less important. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We can blow those people up. That's okay. Um, I don't know. They know it, a lot about bombs. Know, it, it does. Oh, yeah. Liz makes a point that maybe in those other two places, they know a lot more about bombs. They might. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Uh, but, yeah, it does sound a little fishy, doesn't it? Hmm. Okay. Um, they're often uh, nominated airfields to land uh, aircraft at that have got suspect bombs on board. For example, if you have one in the south of the United Kingdom, you will almost be certainly be directed to land at Stansted. Um, because it has, uh, you know, the open space and the, it's set up to deal with uh, those kind of uh, problems. Um, the captain, of course, doesn't have to accept advice when he's in an emergency situation and if there is a genuine bomb threat, uh, he can make his own decision. He has to be able to back it up afterwards, of course, but you know, no one can gainsay him in, while he's in the air. Um, interestingly, uh, you're, this is quite right. There are a lot of threats made uh, against aircraft, and um, the vast majority are considered to be um, not credible. So uh, very few actually result in any action. And interestingly, there's no indication where the bomb threat was made. Was it made to the airline? Was it made to the Indian people uh, or Indian government? We don't know. And um, so it's uh, it's a bit hard to work out where the authority is and whether India can actually say, go and land here. And if the uh, bomb threat was made... Um, against the airline because they will have their own threat assessors. The airline will. They have all the information about what was said and uh, whether they believe it to be a credible threat or not. Uh, and, you know, a country can't force you to uh, react in an emergency. It's up to the crew. Um, and they obviously did what they thought was best. The, whether there was a real bomb threat or whether they just wanted the aircraft to land in India, I do not know. But if if countries are starting to try and use this as a way to get people to land and get passengers off the airplane, this is going to backfire very quickly because you know, no one's going to want to obey uh, you know this kind of uh, order. 
Um, and, um, you know, eventually if, if it is a real bomb and they don't uh, um, behave in, in a correct manner, someone's going to say, no, I'm not going to land, and then they blow up. And, you know, we're faced with a tragedy. Uh, so, you know, I, I'd much prefer countries to work closer and more information to be given. Um, but this is it may be that the, a lot more has happened behind the scenes that we know about on this. Yeah. Good points. Thank you. Um, let's continue with our last item in our news segment. Uh, this from, and I haven't been good about telling uh, you the sources for these things, but this is from Paddle Your Own Canoe. Oh, I love them. Uh, Liz's. One of Liz's favorite uh, Also sent sources. in by Radio Roger. I oh, it was say. also sent in by Radio Roger. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Um, well, he, he's a journalist. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, German flag carrier Lufthansa has reportedly technically banned passengers from using Apple's popular AirTag gadget in their checked luggage because the airline fears the tracking device poses an in-flight danger unless they're turned off and essentially rendered useless. Launched in April 2021 as a way for Apple users to keep track of commonly misplaced everyday objects like keys and wallets, the AirTag made a pretty quiet debut until this year when the gadget's popularity soared. As demand for air travel surged back earlier this year, many airlines quickly buckled under the pressure. Airlines didn't have enough, uh, nearly enough staff and workers who had been let go during the pandemic and didn't want to go back to low-paid shift work hauling bags at an airport. The result was months of travel chaos and hundreds of thousands of lost and delayed baggage that piled up in airports around the world. Passengers lodged lost baggage claims but went ignored by airlines that were inundated with baggage inquiries. If only there were a way for passengers to keep track of their bags after they placed them on the baggage conveyor and into the care of the airlines. The Apple AirTag was an obvious answer. Cheap, light, small, the AirTag works by transmitting a unique identifier via an inbuilt Bluetooth signal. The signal is picked up by any nearby Apple phone, which sends location information to Apple. The owner of the AirTag can then trace the last known location of the gadget via their Find My app on their own phone. AirTags don't have their own GPS or phone signal, and they can't be remotely switched on and off. In April, Elliot Sherrod, who goes by the name Avios Adventure on Twitter, made headlines around the world as he used he used his AirTags to track one of his bags that had been lost by Aer Lingus. The airline promised to, to deliver his bag via courier, courier, but out of four bags that had gone missing, the courier only turned up with three. Elliot had to play detective for Aer Lingus and track the last missing bag to an address in London. And in another case in August uh, in Florida, a luggage thief was caught after a bag with more than $15,000 worth of jewelry didn't show up on the carousel after a flight. The air tag attached to the bag led police straight to the thief's home. Surprise! <sighs> but despite their obvious uses, a Lufthansa spokesperson says air tags should be switched off because they are considered dangerous goods. Luggage trackers belong to the category of portable electronic devices and are therefore subject to the dangerous goods regulations issued by the International Civil Aviation Organization for Transport in Aircraft, a spokesperson for Lufthansa told German publication Wirtschaftswoche last month. I have no idea if that's the way to pronounce that or not, but I, I give it a shot. Accordingly, 
Due to their transmission function, the trackers must be deactivated during the flight, similar to mobile phones, laptops, tablets, etc., if they are in checked baggage. Um, of course, a luggage tracker is only good as good as a luggage tracker. No, of course, a luggage tracker uh, tracker is only any good as a luggage tracker when it is switched on. So where does this leave the passengers? Well, in a b- bizarre twist, Lufthansa says it won't officially ban air tags, even though it points to rules that say that they are technically not allowed. But we do have an update. Um, Lufthansa on Twitter uh, recently tweeted that German aviation authorities confirmed today that they share our risk assessment that tracking devices with very low battery and battery risk with that. These devices are allowed on Lufthansa flights. And that was just uh, yesterday at uh, 314 local time on Twitter that they let everybody know that it's okay. We, we overreacted, I guess. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's cool for you to have your little air tags. Thank goodness, because I have a lot of them on all my stuff. And it's not because I'm worried about the airlines losing my stuff. I just, um, yeah, I don't know where that's coming from. Not me. Um, I just can't keep track of my stuff, mostly. Like, I'll put my wallet down somewhere and walk away and, it, and then not have any idea where I put it. Or my keys. <laughs> Sometimes my phone. Yeah, I, I think uh, the difference with a lot of uh, these battery problems uh, that uh, the batteries you have in uh, these little air tags are the little CR 2032, 20, I think. 2032. Yeah, the, the little ones like a little coin battery. They're not the rechargeable. Uh, yeah, they're not rechargeable. Batteries. I think that's one of the big things. And the uh, regulations uh, say that uh, the main problem is with rechargeable batteries. So. <laughs> Um, that's fine. By the way, like those of you who do use them, um, I had problems um, putting Duracell uh, and some other batteries in, and I had to revert to the manufacturer of the original battery, which was Panasonic. They seem to be the only ones that I could put into my air tags to make them work. Hmm. Um, the other batteries, even the, though uh, they're the same code and looked identical, um, didn't seem to you make contact. You think it was the coating that the makes t- them bitter so that kids and dogs yeah. don't want to eat them? That's right. So, so some have a bitter coating on them and little stickers to indicate that to stop mm-hmm. kids from swallowing them. So uh, uh, the ones that was So the, with the that, companies that don't care about the kids and the dogs yes, use the, their batteries. Those batteries work. <laughs> but having said that, if you made your kids swallow an air tag, would you better find him afterwards? Probably. Yeah. that's the upside interesting yeah very cool okay okay well i guess now that means uh since we finished with our new segment it's time to do the getting to know us segment which is uh as you all know one of my favorite segments where we talk about what each and every one of us have been up to between show recordings and Shall we start with uh, Stephanie uh, yes, right sir. off the bat? Yeah, yeah. let's do that. Uh, oh, we yeah. haven't had uh, Steph with us for a while, and she's going to explain why right now. Um, I wish I knew all the reasons. I can't remember <laughs> the last time I was on the show, so I'm not sure. There were a couple shows where I think it just didn't work out timing-wise. You guys were available during the day, and I'm working during the day, and my apologies for, for that mm-hmm. um, pesky job. Ugh, Nine to five, eight to, jobs. Eight to yeah. five job gets in the way a lot yeah. of the time. 
Um, so mostly it's just been that if I haven't been on the show. Um, wish I could say it was something slightly more exciting, but not not really. Well, you've been doing um, exciting things. I, yeah. I've been doing exciting things, but I don't think that's really been the reason for me not being actually on the show. Oh, okay. But I can tell you about all the exciting things that I've been doing, and most of that involves travel. Um, I actually got to – I put some pictures in there, Jeff. Two of them <laughs> wouldn't upload correctly. I don't know if you're able to – it just shows like the file name. I don't know if you're able to get those. Uh, well, what I'm seeing is a picture of some food, mm-hmm. um, but that's probably not where you want us to start, is it? No, it's not. Um, uh, let's see. Um, let me move through. There's, so uh, hold I took on. A, basically a day trip up to Toronto. That was very lovely. We had a nice time. She was nice enough to collect me at the airport late at night on, gosh, I guess it was a thursday night and then we spent the day together on friday i don't think we took any pictures so i'm sorry there aren't any photos in there of my visit with liz um so don't worry about that too much um there's a reason why that food photo is in there which i'll okay that's that's towards the end of the getting to sorry liz i should have just not done anything (laughs) (laughs) but no it was really nice we had it was a, a very lovely day in toronto so we had a chance to um Mostly just catch up and chat for a while. We had some nice food and beverages and, um, you know, a day uh, goes by pretty quick. But that was very nice of Liz to host me and let me stay with her for the day. And um, I think she she took me to the airport very early on Saturday morning so I can get um, home to get some stuff done. But, um, yeah, and, and gosh, getting to Toronto and going through customs immigration there was perfectly fine. Um, I think we were the only international uh, flight to arrive at that time of day at that particular terminal. So kind of breezed right through there, although I was given a hard time about not following the, um, the stanchions for the, the queue. Um, cause there was, it was confusing. I'm just going to say that Toronto, your, your lines are confusing. Um, but on the way back, um, I had forgotten that you need your, if you're going to do U.S. Customs pre-clearance, immigration pre-clearance, you actually have to have the card for global entry, um, which I didn't bring with me. So they gave me a hard time about doing that. But then at the end of kind of just waiting in the regular security line, I was able to then kind of branch off into global entry and get through a little bit faster, which was good because even at, you know, five o'clock in the morning, it was quite busy. A lot of people traveling back to the States. Um, Seems like a lot of people from Toronto were going to watch the um, Buffalo Bills game. There are a lot of people in line with Buffalo Bills gear on for whatever reason. Toronto to Buffalo? Um, so that was fun. And then it the- like a short flight. Oh, maybe they were playing out of Well, town. I don't know where the game was being played. I think it might have been um, being played in Florida. Oh, Miami or something. Maybe, yeah. I'd have to go there back There was a Bills-Miami game- Yes, it was like Bills-Miami. three weeks ago. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of them were on the same flight as me going through Charlotte to get to Miami. I think that was the case. Um. And then let's see. So that was three weeks ago. So then two weeks ago, I was over in the UK, which was a very nice, lovely trip. Um, the first day that I was there, uh, so I was there for the London Marathon. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. But the first day I was there, uh, I had had a message from Pilot Pip from um, Plane Safety Podcast. And he said, hey, um, we're going to be in um, – uh, in Cambridge, if you've never been for the day, come up and, and join us. And by us, um, he um, was visiting with Myla as well. So that was very nice. One of those pictures that I gave you, Jeff, that you can't actually see is the picture of the three of us. I don't know if you're able to mm. open it or not. You I don't see it. You don't see it? Underneath the – there's the one in Chicago in front of the, the fountain. There's mm-hmm. two 
files. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Let me see um, what I don't I can know which do one it is. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it's a, all right. I'm going to uh, download them to my there you go. computer and see if, see if I can open it. But um, anyways, that was very nice. I, I basically got to, I was pretty delayed getting into Heathrow. Um, I booked a flight through Chicago for a variety of reasons. One is that uh, it was a lot cheaper and two is that it was less full. So I was able to get my business class upgrade, which was great. Always very nice and appreciated um, traveling that direction across the pond. Um, but I, I don't really know the reason why we left almost two hours late from Chicago. Yeah, so we were about an hour late getting into Heathrow. Um, but it worked out okay. Timing was good. Um, I rented a car and drove up to Cambridge and um, Pip gave us a little tour of the town, which was great. And we got that in before the, the rain started. That was really the only day that it rained while I was there, which was nice because the forecast looking at it, you know, was typical, like British, it's going to be 60 degrees in rain every day type of a thing. Um, that pub, we've got the picture up now, Steph. Looks yes. sort of very much uh, an Air Force Association pub. Yes. So uh, that was the RAF pub in Cambridge. <laughs> well, well <I> <laughs> is that the Eagle? The Eagle? Which the uh, wasn't there's a we went to a pub when we were in Cambridge and it had like all the signatures was, of all the pilots. Yes. I don't uh, was it also called the Eagle? I, it might be. I don't think so. The picture that, that I have the of the it. exterior just says Hold, let me pull that picture up. I didn't include it in there. Um, someone else can correct me too, but maybe, but yeah, it had like a, you know, there's writing all over the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. writing all over the walls and pictures all over the walls. Um, very cool place. Um, so basically we, we hung out there cause then it started raining and enjoyed, um, here's my picture of the exterior. Oh yes. The Eagle. Yep. It says, welcome to the RAF bar, but yeah, same place. So you've been there, Nick as well. Yeah. Yeah, we went there a couple times while we were over there in yeah. 19. Yeah. Yeah, Sherman's, cool Sherman's signature is somewhere inside. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Nice. Yeah, really, really cool pub. Good food. Very cool. Had to have standard, you know, fish and chips because I had just gotten there and hadn't had my fill yet. Um, and a couple of pints. And great conversation. Good to catch up with both of them. I hadn't seen them for a while. So um, my my thanks to Pip for suggesting that for a day trip. Um, then I... We we said our goodbyes. I drove back down because I returned the car because I didn't really need the car in central London for the next three days to Heathrow. And apparently, so the there was a train strike going on, but it was not anything to do with the underground. So I was like, fine, I'll take the underground back from Heathrow into central London. Um, but I guess the trains were just not running on a normal schedule because I just managed to miss a train and the next one was like 30 minutes. And now it was like 10 o'clock at night. And I was like, oh, oh okay, I guess I'll be sitting here for a while waiting. Um, but no big deal. Got to the hotel, checked in. Um, my friend that I do a lot of running with was there collecting her six star medal for finishing all of the, um, six world marathon majors. So it was exciting to be able to go and spend some time with her and run. And man, we just had two really nice days, Saturday and Sunday in London, just sunny and warm. And I actually managed to get a bit of a sunburn while running in London in October. So go figure. I don't, know how that happens. Um, <laughs> we do little... have sun. It's just sometimes <laughs> it's obscured. Yeah. A lot of the times it's obscured. It seems to be a common theme over there. Um, I had that picture of the uh, the Tower Bridge. Okay. Jeff. Let me go back I'll to that. That one. Hang on. 
So oh, it yeah, look, I love it this look one. It doesn't terribly sunny in this picture, but actually, I took video, I my own video, um, running the other, like from the other side of the bridge, and you can see the sun in the, the background. So I think in it's fact, the way the you're flying process. in that picture. I know, I'm not even touching the ground. Aren't touching the ground, <laughs> just yeah. really floating like along. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm sorry, this is not optimum. No, sorry, it's I'm my fault for to... being late getting the uh, pictures. Get this in okay, because it's like a couple different ways to show this. So here we go. We're back to this yeah. method. I had it like cropped so you could mostly just see me in the bridge, but that's okay. I couldn't. I couldn't share it in the cropped format. It kept oh. asking me to revert it to the original. So who knows? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I mean, it kind of gives you a sense of how many people are out there too. Um, just a really cool event. So me and the guy who's kind of um, at the same distance back as me. More in the center, we're both looking at the camera, so I thought that was kind of fun. Um, yeah, just just a really great day. Had a really good run in London. Um, knew I wasn't super well trained this this year, so decided just to go out easy and um, push the back half if I still felt good. So that that was the plan, and it it worked out. I think I ran a three three hours and fifty one minutes ish. Um, Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, where's was, the picture of the London medal? With the intestines oh, on it. The intestines. It's a picture of the, it's a picture of the river. <laughs> I'll have to go get it. Uh, when we, after I stop talking, I'll go get it. It's in the next room over um, if you really want to see it. But I, I like the metal this year. It was interesting. It was kind of dark, uh, like black, almost obsidian colored and shiny and pink ribbons. And I don't know. This is nice. Um, so that was Sunday. And then Monday, um, my friend Karen and I, uh, we got back in a car, Karen Brave, driving uh, in the UK with me. And we went to visit Nick and Jilly for a few hours in the afternoon and evening. So um, that was really nice. Unfortunately, I don't think we actually have a picture of any of all of us together either. But I did include the food picture because I think on the last show, you showed a picture of me eating this concoction, which yeah. I don't know if it was the most flattering picture I've ever taken. <laughs> but I did want to show what was like inside the pita for those who remember. Um, there was actually venison kebabs or something along those lines with some pickled Absolutely. veggies and some some really nice uh almost like a chutney or really nice chips for the dogs yeah. and chips for the dogs so do we have a, that picture over. somewhere wait we, yeah. we showed the, food, you the, the first one you showed the, with the, food, the food okay the, the chips. The show. <laughs> so this is just the update this is what the actual food actually looked like before it went in the uh, okay uh where'd it go can't find it i don't know i'm looking at it it's in the getting to know us it is yeah. Oh, and the getting to know us. Yeah. Well, that does no nobody any good. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. That's the only place I had to put. The uh, okay. Back here. That and okay. We're like right there. All right. Somebody hit share. Got it. Oh. Um, <laughs> there we go. Thank you. There it is. Yes. So. But ah, it's very tasty. I was suffering from food envy at this point. Fantastic. Mm, I know Nick goes. Go. I should have ordered that. <laughs> yeah. I know. It looked great. Your food was good too. I mean, venison the restaurant again. I know we we've actually been there. I've been there. That was the deer's well. hut. The deer's hut. Yes, that's a great yeah. place in um, Liphook. Can thoroughly recommend of, it. Very nice. Uh, lots of ambiance. An old 16th century shooting lodge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very very good. So yeah. my thanks to to you and Julie for hosting us for the day. That was that was lovely. We enjoyed it. Was it. it was a lovely and day. Thanks for again, coming. Nice, nice weather and got to take the dogs out for a walk and all that good stuff too. So. Nice to get the do a little shakeout for the legs. Um, so then uh, the next day we flew back across the pond, um, 
and I went to work for a couple of days. And I think you guys recorded a show while I was at work. Did that you? Week. Did you yeah. not see somebody else? Before? Oh, I did. I'm sorry. I have another picture in there. Yes. Um, thank you for reminding me because this was right after the the race on Sunday. Um, I, that's why I put all the pictures in here because I knew I was going to forget to talk about something. Um, but I don't know how I could forget to talk about Captain L because he's the best. Um, he sent a message and said, hey, um, you know, uh, basically on a layover at a hotel and about 30 minutes away by train. And if you're not too tired after the run, um, I could shoot down to the hotel and hang out for a drink or two. So that's what he did. Um, and it was, it was just really nice to catch up with, with Al. Um, you know, he's always... Um, always enjoy to talk to, always has good stories. And it's nice to hear that he's, um, you know, he's doing well and, you know, family's reasonably well and, and I'd like to catch up with him more often. So thank you, Al, for, for coming down to the hotel. Appreciate that. So he bought a couple of rounds of drinks, I think too. So thank you. That's the important thing. Yes. Good of job. Course, of course. So yeah, so successful UK trip. I got to see Pip and Al and Nick and Myla and, did all the running and yeah, in, in just a couple of days time. So that was, that was pretty good. I know there's a lot of other people that I would have liked to have seen as well. So we'll just have to plan more trips. There you go. Excellent. <laughs> so you, and then, yes. So you, you went from over there across the pond, over there, back, over back here to our worked. side. Yep. Yeah. Worked Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then went to Chicago for the Chicago marathon. Um, which was much more of a, a family and close friends affair in Chicago. Um, so I didn't a lot of, include a lot of those pictures. However, um, I will say that I had kind of the same strategy in Chicago that I had in London of just going out easy and then running the back half faster. And I failed miserably because it's just hard to go out slow in Chicago. It's six, like, it's just, I love that race and it's, uh, everyone's kind of amped up at the beginning of it even more so than in other races just because you're in the city and they do a really good job of um, <clears throat> just just making everyone really excited before you start running. Um, and the way that they have the corral set up, you end up running with, uh, I always end up running in kind of a faster group than I probably should be with. But you could take yourself back, but why would you do that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> seems silly. Um, so the last couple miles were, were rough. Let's just say that, um, you know, some, say some unexpected and unrelating to unrelated to running physiologic barriers that I encountered. Um, if I was thinking clearly and didn't have marathon brain, I should have just stepped into a med tent as soon as I started being uncomfortable and asked for some acetaminophen, which was ultimately the cure for the, the problem. Um, but I didn't what do that. It, because what was it? A buildup of late lactic acid? Lactic? No, no, it had nothing. Lactic actually, acid? had nothing to do with running. <laughs> so oh, okay. not to get into any, anything too. Fair enough. No, that's all right. Um, but let's um, just say the last two miles weren't weren't a lot of fun. Um, but I, my my brain, you know, at that point, you're like, you only have two miles to go. You can do this. Just keep going. Just keep going. Don't stop. And yeah. Um, but I had a lovely um, shout out with about 800 meters to go. You make a make a right turn um, off of Michigan Avenue and you go up over some train tracks and then you make a left turn back into Grant Park to to finish right at the end. And as I'm making that right turn, someone goes, Dr. Steph. Yeah. And I was like, Hello. <laughs> like I, didn't even see, I couldn't even see who it patient? actually was. <laughs> I couldn't even see who it actually was. I'm here for my appointment. Yeah, because there's just like a bunch of people, and I just, you know, I just like turned around and like, you know, pointed and tried to acknowledge who it was. And um, turns out, you remember a guy by the name of Uber Frank? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. His daughter Frank Steph, was there, huh? 
Oh. No, Frank was not there. His daughter oh, okay. Steph was there working okay. through ah. she was a paramedic, and she was working one of the rigs at the finish line area. Um, oh, excellent. And so she had been tracking me on the tracker and knew where I was and, and caught me. And she actually um, – I shared that picture with you because she – that might be – did I share that picture? No. Uh, that don't ah, see that picture. I, I, I see this. Uh, yeah, that was at the very finish. Sorry, I thought I had shared – but it, it didn't make, I don't have it either in there. It didn't make it in for some reason. Okay. But anyway, she, um, she crabbed a, I think she actually had a video, but Frank shared a, a screenshot of one of the pictures, which was really, really nice. So, um, he, he, he messaged me right after I finished. He said, just in case you're wondering who was yelling your name at the, the finish area, that was, <laughs> yes. I said, I was wondering, I couldn't, I couldn't quite make out who it was. So Brilliant. It was very nice and a much needed boost right at the finish of a, of a tough last couple miles. So. Um, so yeah, all kinds of, um, APG connections the past three weeks or so for me, even though there hasn't been a lot of flying or a lot of aviation specific stuff, you see marathon running can, can get you That's places brilliant. Yeah. Well get to see people. So yes. Two, two marathons in a week is, I mean, it's still, you've done it before I know, but yes. uh, it's still going to be tough. It's tough. Yeah. It's, it's, I like the challenge though. I do enjoy it, but now I'm going to take a little breather for a while. I've got a 5K for fun next week at, this is aviation related, at the Charlotte Douglas Airport on the runway. Um, and actually, I didn't even sign up for that. My dad wanted to do it, so he signed us up. Oh, so cool. we'll go do it together. Um, and you run a lot, a lot faster when the airplanes are like taking off. Yeah, you know, you know when they're, when they're well, when they're landing behind you. Or landing you know, behind you. You got yeah. to move it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, some motivation so you don't get run over. Um, and yeah, then a little, little break for a while. So back to back to flying this weekend. That'll be good. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Good job. Thanks. Yeah. Well, we're we're glad that you're back safe and sound and uh, back safe and get sound. To see and again, thanks to thanks to everyone that wanted to catch up and meet up. And I know there were others that I just we just ran out of time. So next time for sure. And another two medals to your collection. Another two medals. And while whoever's talking, I'll go grab the one that Nick wants to see that doesn't have intestines <laughs> on it. But it's <laughs> yes. the River Thames that apparently looks like intestines. When no, you it's an intestine. <laughs> it's not an intestine. We'll let you be the judge, dear listeners. <laughs> yeah. Okay, oh. over to one of the Nicks. Let's uh, go to Nick Camacho. Uh, yeah, so uh, I was on last week. Uh, since then, I've done um, some more flying. I did make it to the 10th on my effort to fly uh, as many Every days day. as I could. Right. Yep. Uh, and then, um, had some mildly adverse weather on uh, Tuesday. And so kind of decided that that would be a good place to take a break. Also had to fill, uh, the Bonanza up with gas and that's a little depressing at the moment <laughs> with the current, How what big is the tank? uh, well, it holds 90 gallons oh, wow. between uh -huh. the four tanks. <laughs> <laughs> and so times yeah, so like seven ish that was the pr yeah that yeah, was yeah. uh that was the problem was that um <laughs> we went and flew, flew it and then i brought it back and decided i needed to put some gas in the tip tanks because i hadn't run the tip tanks yet since uh, i started flying it um so that was a uh steep fuel bill uh fortunately for most of uh my flying the past couple of weeks i've been taking the luscom out so even on my heavier days where I'd get out for an hour, an hour and a half, I was burning like uh, five gallons a flight. That's so, nice. um, yeah. 
So then going and putting about 42 gallons in the uh, Bonanza was a little steep. Mm. Um, but uh, I'm hoping to uh, get back after it. Uh, it's been a rough week, so I'm hoping uh, getting through tomorrow, uh, then this weekend, have some time to uh, get back out there and start flying again. Uh, one near-term trip that I need to take is I need to run some engine parts down to Tulsa. There's a big uh, engine part shop in Tulsa that we've used in the past and it's uh super convenient because they are literally across the street from the FBO at the Tulsa airport. So uh in the past when we've taken parts down to them we land and I call them and they say okay we'll be right over and then they drive the 30 seconds or so to come pick us up, haul all our parts over there and then um bring us back. So it's a uh a lot more convenient to turn that uh, two and a half hour car drive into like a 45 minute flight down and back. So um, I don't know if we'll be ready for that this weekend, but hopefully in the next week or so we can get, uh, get that done. And then um, yeah, outside of that, still trying to catch up on house and personal stuff from being gone most of September. <laughs> Excellent. So your your wife actually recognizes you and your children. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We're, That's good. Yep. We're getting back to that point. Oh, all right. Well, very good. Good to have you again on uh, this week's show, Nick. Um, how about Captain Nick? Uh, have you been up to anything, sir? Only one thing, really vaguely oh, aviation related. It was uh, the first of our <laughs> new annual meetups of uh, virgins so <laughs> um retired the retired virgin pilots uh, have got together on the squinty net and uh someone said oh it'd be a good idea if we uh, all uh, had a bit of a chat and jaw and uh, talked about old times so uh that is the pub we met at which is actually a very nice pub uh, the um knights templar in uh, middle of London, uh, it, um, it quite a fancy building. It used to be a bank. So uh, uh, now, interesting peoples we've got here. We've got our next forty-three squadron Phantom pilot. Not just the one taking the picture. We got a pardon me, a uh, a Hawk Cure Five. We've got a um, an RAF pilot who was the very first exchange pilot to fly the. F-117, when it was a very secret uh, stealth bomber uh, in that picture, amongst others. So uh, it was, you know, some really interesting blokes uh, flew for Virgin, and a lot of them were there. So uh, great fun to uh, see them all again and uh, have a few beers and uh, trade a few rude um, signals. <laughs> <laughs> but ba basically, we just... I had a great afternoon uh, supping ale and swapping old war stories. So uh, that was great. It was nice to see one. Thanks to the guy right in the middle of the picture, Gasher Tilton, who um, was the famous uh, uh, Virgin pilot who pressed the button that no pilot should ever press. <laughs> and um, as he completed his transatlantic crossing, he discovered what the, the button did when two uh, Canadian F-18s pitched up on his wing and told him to land. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, someone had put a secret hijack button on the airplane. And um, 
oh not my. told him about it. And he decided to push it. <laughs> yeah. He did. Nothing else to do, right? Oh, no, I wonder push what this button. I've never seen that button before. I wonder what that button does. So uh, there you go. That was that's Gash's uh, uh, story. Uh, very funny guy as well. Lovely. So that was that was great fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh look, look, there's you see. There you go. That's it's a nice nice badge with a bit of intestine in the middle. Look, there you go. See. <laughs> Or it Is looks that- like maybe like somebody opening their mouth in their uvula. Um, oh, well, no, like- turn it on its side. <laughs> it's turn exactly- it on its ear, Steph. There you go. Now you see it's more like, when it's, it's exactly up and down, it's more like an intestine. looks like. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. This was the, the Chicago medal. For- there you go. Oh, I, I, I like the Chicago one, but the shiny London one doesn't. I know. Yeah, I like the, the shiny. It nice. looks like a CD to yeah. me. Yeah. It's it's dark. It's like- That's a bit, though. Yeah. 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 Shine, black chrome, eh? Yeah. Right, black, brilliant. Black Very sharp. Love it. But I'd be interested to know, uh, <laughs> interested to know what the, oh, actually, the, this is perhaps as a show title, uh, something to do with the intestines there. Okay. Sure. No. What do you What have you been doing, <laughs> Jeff? I'm the only one fascinated by this, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Liz is asking what the heck I've been doing, and I, I've just been flying airplanes and singing, and sometimes at the same time, but usually on different days. Um, and flew another three-day trip Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday with my favorite FO uh, Brent. And uh, first night was in Springfield, Missouri, Missouri, I guess they say. And uh, the next that in, in Ozark country that is in Ozark country, Liz. Yes. Ooh. And uh, next night we were in uh, Chattanooga and I got a chance to meet Mrs. Brent, uh, Judy. Uh, for, for many years, I've, I've talked to her and told her I loved her uh, while Brent was talking on the phone with her. Um, and um, yeah, it's not annoying at all. And uh, she is the uh, wonderful person who uh, is a wonderful baker. And for so many trips until recently when I told Brent to tell her to stop making these wonderful coffee cakes and bun cakes and all these wonderful things that, you know, the first thing that Brent would do as he climbs into the cockpit on the first day of the trip is he pulls out a, uh, like a Tupperware container with, uh, a whole bunch of, uh, uh, cakes goodies. and goodies and things that I probably shouldn't be eating. And, uh, anyway, so I got a chance to meet her. She, we were in Chattanooga, Brent lives North of Atlanta in Cartersville. So that's kind of like halfway between Atlanta and uh, Chattanooga. And so it was like about an hour's drive uh, up and she had to be in Chattanooga for something to return something to some bookstore or something up there. And so Brent said, well, hey, I'm going to be there. And so she uh, pulled date night by the uh, it was not date night. It was it was not the third wheel. Um, uh, I I told him if uh, he wanted to you know, have a, have a date night with his wife that I'd be happy to do something else. And he said, Nope, we're going to go and eat some barbecue. So she picked us up at the hotel. We had some uh, good barbecue in Chattanooga called uh, sugars ribs, I think. And, uh, so that was, Oh, and I got to meet uh, one of uh, Brent's nieces as well. She happens to be going to school there at uh, UT Chattanooga and, uh, yeah, it was a good time. And then, uh, back, uh, pretty early on Wednesday and, um, here we are, Thursday of the week, and um, no plans for flying until Monday morning. Uh, and I'm going to do my usual um, singing 
on Saturday and Sunday. And uh, following the next trip, um, hopefully, well, I'm not sure how we're going to do the show next week. We'll talk about that after we record the show here. Um, but uh, I'm heading down to Austin, Texas to uh, view uh, my very first in-person Formula One race at the U.S. Grand and Prix And eat some barbecue. Yes, and Ooh, eat some barbecue for sure. Yeah. Oh, wow. That should be fun. Yeah. Um, good uh, community member uh, dispatcher, Could you Tom. do me a favor when you're there, Jeff? Yeah. Could you put some sugar in Verstappen's tank? Oh, okay. Well, I, I'll try. I'll see how close Thanks. I can get. Thanks. I think you just uh, made that it. sabotage made like publicly. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't think it matters, does it? Probably oh, not. ouch! Hasn't he already? Uh, hasn't yeah, he already? Right. He's already won the championship. But yeah, I think you know, he maybe championship last week. Yep, he did. It was kind of one of those kind of what? What? Oh, I am the it champion. Was it was kind of a <laughs> <laughs> like he didn't realize it. No, because or he they, knew it. It was oh. a, no, he did not it was, realize it. Yeah, there it was, was a, a race that was rain shortened, uh, and they didn't think uh, they weren't sure exactly how many points each driver was going to be awarded. And I think most people, even the commentators, were saying that you know it's confusing. not quite enough to win the championship. And then while he was like being interviewed after the race, that somebody says, "Oh, you're how the does champion. it feel to be the champion?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of a uh, probably not the way he envisioned um, enjoying a little bit of a championship win. But um, yeah, what a driver! He's a he's a very very talented uh, talented driver. He des- definitely deserves the championship this year. Yeah, not so, bad for a Belgian champ. Yeah. Cover art. Cover art. Well, let's see. Is there anything else that I wanted to say? No, nope, I don't think so. That was it. Okay, uh, let's uh, move on to uh, last week's cover art, and uh, <laughs> it kind of centered around um, wearing uh, the inappropriate or no um, undergarments, and then well, we- also the Virgin Atlantic. Uh, pilots wearing skirts. I haven't yeah, had a chance oh, yeah. to listen to this episode yet, so I'm gonna have to yeah, go back was, and listen to your commentary. Stuff. I know the or, I know the story that you you were discussing. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to your yeah. Commentary. Well, you know, one of the thing that and also uh, c- combined with uh, the fact that uh, Virgin Atlantic um, has a new uniform philosophy or policy uh, that uh, <laughs> oh. allows you to that's, wear. That's uh, true. Yes. What uh, Miami Rick is wearing in this photo. Um, yeah. And, uh, we, we even discussed, you know, maybe some of the advantages and disadvantages of wearing a a skirt, uh, at the, uh, at the controls of various uh, Uh jets. Depends on the type of jet you're flying. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, and I mentioned, just so you know, that is actually discussed by female pilots on like, it's like circular runways. It comes up every once in a while yeah, (laughs) just so that people can debate it. And then it goes Yeah, but this is male pilots too. That can wear a skirt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But I said, if you're, if you're wearing one that has a, um, a conventional yoke, you just, uh, just hike that darn thing up around your waist and, uh, you're good to go. Exactly right. Just slide your sporran to one side and mm-hmm. off you go. Well, that kind of is what Miami Rick is sort of doing. Although I, I don't know, this looks more like some kind of a blast of, um, uh, rearward facing air, uh, <laughs> as I'm, um, sitting in my seat trying to sleep, I guess. I'm not sure. Or, or have, have I passed out, Nick? Um, uh, I, I I can't say for sure, I'm yeah. afraid. But you've got your mask on. That was a very sensible thing to do. Yes, for sure. And I was I, obviously praying that, uh, that, that Miami <laughs> yes. Rick would leave and put his skirt down. 
And of course, the passenger that is near me is uh, quite quite upset with the Janet whole Lee situation. Janet Lee, Psycho. Yeah, Janet Lee. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a, uh, there's a a famous movie reference in that picture. So, uh, yeah, I think I think most of the um, people in the chat room have probably got it. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that was uh, another Mike, amazing. Michael for sure got it. Work yeah. of art. There. Yeah, yeah. Mike Mike was dropping all sorts of um, hints. But uh, that's a picture from the advertisement of the old uh, Psycho movie from the, from the famous shower-stabbing scene. Mm-hmm. Which is not quite as upsetting as what she is witnessing here in this book. <laughs> it was better when she was, actually was stabbed. Yeah. I was looking at, uh, no, yeah, was looking at Rick's hairy backside. Okay. Anyway, the yeah, the name of the I don't know. Uh, he might wax. Do you, do you know if he waxes? <laughs> not sure. Uh, yeah. So the, the the episode title was Pilot in Commando, in Command. Oh, yeah. So many different versions of that. Anyway, uh, a wonderful piece of artwork, Nick. Uh, thank no, you very well, much. It was a, it was a, a quick and dirty one. <laughs> <laughs> in so many ways. Yes. <laughs> okay. Alrighty, uh, and then uh, also it's uh, well now it's time for the coffee fun. We'll quickly knock that out. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. I love, I love tea. tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. There we go. Hey, uh, this is the Coffee Fund, where we talk about those wonderful people who are part of our Coffee Fund cadre, coffee bar, club, whatever you want to call it. Those people that actually support us uh, financially. And a couple different ways to do that. And one is the Coffee Fund classic method, where you can send in individual one-offs, uh, contributions and our good friend Mazuts Karim uh, sent us another uh, one-off uh, contribution. Thank you very much, sir. We do appreciate you and your contributions. Another way to uh, become part of our Coffee Fund cadre is to uh, join Patreon and become a patron of the show via Patreon. And this week we don't have any new patrons. We had a couple last week and the week before. So, uh, uh, anyway, if you're interested in like pledging a certain amount per episode, we usually do four or five a month and recently only about three. Anyway, uh, information about all that can be found by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will too. All right, we're going to start off with this from Anthony Norman. Hello, APG crew. I'm a CFI teaching out of RDU, Raleigh, Durham, and TTA, which is Taco Truck Airport. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember the exact name of the thing now. I always just think of it as 
it has... uh, it's a uh, oh my gosh it just up. i know exactly where it is i see it all the time. <laughs> i know where it is too i just don't know what the real name uh, for gta no, is stand by. Uh, but they had a nice taco truck there for their 200th uh, episode uh show it's, last year it's sanford but i think it's is it raleigh executive raleigh executive yes that's what they call yeah. it yeah he says where i met jeff at the ob 200th episode still waiting on you to overnight in raleigh so i can buy you a beer anyway this feedback is really for nick c a student of mine has a nice video of betsy's biscuit bomber taking off from stearman field around july of last year i think Here's the video. Even if you don't share this on the show, I wanted to show Nick the video. Yeah, we're showing it on the show because it's a great video. And it's always cool to hear these wonderful radial engines on this C-47. Anyway, Anthony says, thanks and love what y'all do. All right. So without further ado, we're going to go over here and hit this thing that says add to the stream. Whoa. Uh, love that sound. We're looking at that beautiful Betsy's Biscuit Bomber uh, at Stearman Field, rolling for takeoff. I guess that, that heading south, Nick? Yep. Yep. Heading south. Tell us. Give us a narrative. Uh, well, uh, here we're at about 90 miles an hour, and we're getting ready to rotate. And there we go. Uh, I'm trying to tell what this... Uh, <laughs> That was if, sweet. If this is the, a departure or if this is just a, like the departure to go home or a local flight, I can't tell. But um, clearly, as you can see by the abundance of uh, security, we have very minimal uh, airline service <laughs> at our airport. <laughs> it's a great feel, As you though. can tell by all these yeah, people everybody's standing out there on the video. whole short yep. line. Yep. Yeah. But a little, uh, that, that little nose that we're seeing, I guess that's just a propeller spinner right there that we're yeah, seeing. Yeah, it's a spinner yeah. from an aircraft aircraft yeah. that's just parked. Yeah. And then over to the left, uh, is that, that's kind of down near, near where you're near, down there where your hangar is. Yeah. Uh, my hangar's on the left side. So the uh -huh. east side of the airport, about halfway down. So it's yeah. just out of frame here. Okay. Um, Let's watch yeah. that again. I, yeah, I want to hear those radial engines again. Whoa, it's loud. Love that sound. Uh, Caesar says, "Does Betsy's biscuit bomber have a special call sign on the radio?" Nick? Uh, nope, not generally. Generally, when we're uh, just traveling around the NAS, uh, we just, we just go by uh, Douglas Four Seven Zero Juliet. It's so far away. <laughs> Beautiful. Most of the air shows we fly, we we just use Dakota call signs. So Dakota, you know, <laughs> that was sweet. whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, nope, nothing special. Very cool. Very cool. Yep. All right. That's very nice. Well, control room tells me that uh, you are now excused to uh, go on with your regular life. Mm. And uh, we were... Very happy that you were able to join us on the show, Nick. And uh, we'll ho we hope to see you again on the next week's show. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Sorry for bailing early, but uh, yeah. Hey, see understandable. You guys. See you guys All next time. Life, I understand. Okay. Yep. Take care. Yep. See ya. Bye. 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 And um, anyway, at least he shows up, you know, stuff sometimes doesn't even bother. Now, uh, is now appropriate time 
to mention to Anthony if he could ask his um, student to uh, shoot in um, landscape next time. That would <laughs> be better. Mm-hmm. I know. I, I think it was I just mean, us boomers. So presumably that, he's uh, kind of probably young, you know, and yeah, all the kids. Well, they got to they got to film it in, in profile that way for their TikTok because it doesn't. Mm-hmm. If you did it in landscape, uh, okay. it doesn't show up on TikTok correctly. All right. I, I wish know, there TikTok's was a cool. way to, or maybe there is, to just like do one video and then have both options, you know, 16 by 9 and 9 by 16. Neat, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you could just, uh, you know, pick the one that would be appropriate for whatever. Apple, are you listening? Yeah. You know, they may yeah. already have something like that that I just am not aware of. But uh, yeah, moving just, back to number three. Okay. Moving back to three. Thank you, uh, Liz. So um, there we go. <laughs> a APG 50% guarantee. There we go. All right. So half the time we get it in the right format. Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. Oh. That's what Jeffrey's doing for us is keeping us above fifty percent. Ah, okay. Oh, this, well, this Jeffrey. This one we were. Oh, we were- I gotcha. Okay, so that was a pre, a pre uh, news or a pre we be- feedback well, thing here. Okay, we were below the fifty percent mark. Obviously. Yeah, apparently. Apparently we were. Uh, we Apparently were talking. it was Rick too, which is not usual. <laughs> going so. here. Yeah, we were. We were talking about after we do this feedback, though, we'll be above. Yeah. Right? Right. Okay. Right. So uh, was it last week? I think it was yeah, last week. Last we week, were. Yeah. Uh, we showed that uh, video from um, Tropical Nick Underwood, Nick Underwood uh, and he was inside that Hurricane Hunter, that NOAA uh, WP3D Orion. And so Jeffrey in Grand Rapids, great beer town, by the way, uh, writes in and says, hello, APG. Hope you're all doing great. You folks are, we're talking about the hurricane hunting aircraft on episode 539. When Liz asked if the aircraft used in hurricane operations are strengthened to withstand the rigors of cutting through hurricanes. And Rick responded that they are strengthened. I'm here to keep you above the old 50% accuracy mark. Interestingly, their main spars are not strengthened for your hurricane operations. While the Orion does have its floor strengthened to handle heavier scientific equipment, the WP version, the U.S. Air Force WC-130Js have stock airframes. NOAA also uses a Gulfstream 4 SP, but that aircraft flies high above of the storm around flight level 450 and is not used for punching through the hurricane's eye wall like the C-130s and the P-3s are. Man, if I had any hurricane duty, that's the one I'd want to do. Not punch yeah, through the wall. Yeah, I just fly like way above it and look yeah, down, look down and, and go, Ooh, enjoy the... kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll include links to NOAA's wiki page and the U.S. Air Force Hurricane Hunter website where I obtained this information. So basically what he's saying to us is if you just bothered to Google it, uh, you would have seen that uh, they're not <laughs> strengthened. <laughs> but thank you, Jeffrey, for uh, helping not us out. Do. Yeah, Drinking that's a good not, yeah. Grand Rapids uh, beer. Oh, yeah, that's right. Excellent. Founders. Excellent. All day IPA. All day. Steph's favorite. All day. I'd, I'd seen an interview with uh, the Hurricane Boys um, on PTUK when they mentioned that. And I thought about interrupting at the time, but I thought, well, perhaps no one will notice. Because when is that? Well, somebody always, always. Our, our community is very, very <laughs> sharp. Always watching. Always, always looking watching. for some opportunity to go. Uh, yeah, below fifty yeah, percent. Okay. That's, that's really what keeps this show going. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Us being wrong and then you correcting. <laughs> that's us. the secret. Shh, don't tell oh, them. Exactly. <laughs> Love it. Um, 
Anyway, uh, the, the part from the Wikipedia, uh, the Lockheed WP-3D Orion, while the aircraft are not specifically strengthened for flying into hurricanes, their decks were reinforced to withstand the additional equipment load. Okay, he talked about that. And then uh, are the aircraft's wings uh, specially reinforced? And uh, this one is from the Hurricane Hunters, the C-130. Believe it or not, they aren't. Remember, the airplanes are built to go very fast through the air, and they don't care if the wind is 5 knots or 150 knots. As we approach the strongest winds in a hurricane, we simply turn gradually into the wind, called crabbing, until we punch through the calm eye. Although there are usually some bumps on the way through. Yeah, little bumps. Uh, they are nothing that the airplane can't handle. Although the folks on board can occasionally get sick. Yeah. That's Ew. no fun. Thanks again, Jeffrey and uh, Grand Rapids. And uh, I guess we move now to five. Mike, Mike's, no, yeah, Mike's audio. All right. Mike uh, sent us this. Hi, APG crew and listeners, including those poor souls with APG syndrome. This is Mike from Philly, and I'll be sharing an amazing visit my family and I took at the Air Traffic Regional Radar Center and Philadelphia Air Traffic Control Tower. It started with an event at our local airport, Chester County, hosted by Chester County Aviation, located in southeastern Pennsylvania. I recently took a discovery flight and am about to start my initial flying lessons, so signed up for various notifications at the airport. The airport invited two people from the Philadelphia Regional Radar and Control Tower to give a presentation on temporary flight restrictions, or TFRs. This is especially timely since the airport is close to President Biden's house in Delaware. Many general aviation airports and flight destinations in the area are impacted by his TFR when he flies home for the weekend. They gave a wonderful presentation on TFRs and what to do, including a lot of the subtleties that may not be immediately obvious. As they were setting up their slides, I happened to notice their computer file structure, and one of the files was called Slides for Tour Groups. So after the presentation, I went up to talk to one of the speakers and thank him for his presentation. Having seen the file name, I asked him if they happen to still give tours. He said they can do scheduled tours with larger groups, as well as handle small groups of two or three people pretty much at any time. Since my wife and I had an upcoming trip to Ireland, UK, and Portugal, I asked for a tour a few hours before our check-in time. And I included my daughter who was driving us uh, to the airport. He happily agreed and gave us his card to help coordinate the visit. A few days before the trip, he asked me for everyone's name, the car type, and license plate information so he could inform the guard that we'd be visiting. Before the start of the tour, we did have to turn off our cell phones so I didn't have any photos to share. Later on, we found out this was because the Secret Service was also on site that day. He first showed us the training room on the ground floor. It contained 16 of the largest monitors I'd ever seen in a conference room. They were about three feet across and six feet from top to bottom, and they were laid out in about a 270-degree arc, which simulated the view from the top of the control tower. While we were there, they ran a few simulations of planes arriving and departing, and they were also able to show other situations such as weather, stoppage of planes, backup on the various taxiways, as well as simulating deer and other animals running across the runway. They can simulate most problems as well as rare problems as part of the controller's initial and ongoing training. After visiting the training room, we went up a few floors to the regional radar room. This was a large room 
with about 20 stations with duplicate equipment so any controller could step up to any position quickly and handle either the general area or a specific region. They provide the support for many of the general aviation airports in the area, as including things like flight coverage or flight uh, tracking. He did explain that the coverage is going to expand up eventually up to Teterbury to help with some of the load out of New York. The room itself was rather dark, so it took us a while to get our eyes accustomed to it. And by chance, because we were there on a Friday afternoon, we had arrived just before Biden's latest TFR was about to start. So it was amazing to watch them come into action, start to clear various planes from the region in preparation for the TFR. And then as Biden and his entourage took off from Washington, D.C., we were able to track the movement of his flights coming up and watching, again, how the controllers were formally now clearing the space of the TFR. It was very impressive to see how they handled notifying and moving other aircrafts out of the TFR area. It was very professional, very smooth. After the radar room, we next moved up to the top floor of the building, which is the Philadelphia control tower for PHL. There was a bit of a lull as we, the time that we came, there was only a few flights that were arriving and departing. It was great because it gave us some time that we were able to speak to all of the controllers. They were saying the big push was coming in about an hour, and we had an opportunity to really understand how all the different positions worked. While we were talking with them, they pulled our specific flight information and showed us how we'd pull out from the gate, the, the different taxiways we were going to use, the runway, as well as the route that we were going to fly as we transitioned to the New York um, uh, flying space, the airspace. Now, I've always heard about what air traffic controllers do, but to see them in action was very impressive, and it was hard to put into words. Even my daughter and wife, who had zero ATC knowledge, thoroughly enjoyed the tour. Seeing the smooth operations made them feel safer when they fly. We talked with the controllers even more about the labor shortages and how it's affecting controllers. Part of the challenge with bringing people back to work is dealing with the backlog of people reattaining or obtaining for the first time their security clearances. Those groups performing the clearances are also backed up, so therefore delaying the process. Another challenge is the length of time to train new employees. They typically only hire people 32 years or younger since controllers must retire in their mid-50s. Given the amount of training, they want to ensure that employees are around long enough to benefit from all the training that they receive. So as a newbie to general aviation, I don't know how common it is to meet with controllers and visit a Class B control tower. I do recommend, though, working with your local flight clubs and airport to see about inviting them up to give a presentation. Once the relationship is established, it's certainly easier to ask about if they also offer uh, on-site tours. It was highly impressive and definitely worth the hour and a half that we spent prior to our check-in. If we didn't have to catch our flight, we easily could have spent even more time. And I plan to go back with uh, some other friends of mine to see it yet again. Again, very impressive. So, APG crew, thanks again for your great podcast, allowing me to share the story. And Blue Skies Tailwinds and good IPAs. This is Mike from Philly. Thanks, Mike from Philly. And those TFRs he was talking about, those are usually uh, issued by NOTAMs. Is that correct, Steph? 
Uh, you can get them in the NoDam, yes. Yeah. That's what NoDams are. They're just a bunch of garbage. <laughs> well, now we know. Okay. Was it, did you hear that or was it just me? No, I could hear it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just no I was actually just no thinking, hopefully we'll get some, some um, <laughs> updates on NoTams from other community members who may have had some discussions about them this weekend at various professional conferences. Yes. Conferences. Mm-hmm. Oh, com- conference. she's using air quotes, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. listening to the audio podcast. <laughs> yes. Steph's wonderful conferences. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Mike, for taking the time. Uh, really do appreciate that. And uh, we'll include a link to uh, the transcript in the show notes if you want to read mm-hmm. along with Mike as he uh, puts out his audio feedback. I don't know. I, I would never do that. No. <laughs> uh, it's just, if you watch the video, you'll know what I'm referring to. Okay. Uh, plain tail time? Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, you said right now, or you want me to do no, one before let, the plane No, let's do tail? one or two more. Oh, okay. Okay. Here's I understand now. All right. Well, which one uh, is, would you like to do, Steph? Six. Oh, well, I don't know. Number six looks okay. relatively yeah. short. Okay. Yeah, it is. Um, sadly. Uh, feedback from Sal, uh, Skiathos Airport Landing, APG 537 feedback. Hi, Captain Jeff. I travel to Skiathos often, uh, aka the St. Martin of the Aegean. And know the airport well. There are no taxiways at this airport. It appears the pilot could have avoided using reverse thrust to back up by first steering the plane to the right into the circle and then a sharp left in the circle as most pilots who fly the larger jets into the Skiathos airport do. Pilots use the same procedures when entering the runway to take off. You can Google Earth the Skiathos airport um, and it's blurred out. I'm not sure I understand if that you, part. If you Google Earth, the Skiathos Airport, yeah, it's blue. It's blurred out. Blurred out. Oh, I wonder the why they blurred is. out the airport. I don't know. Um, maybe story. that's maybe that's why that pilot had a little issue because he was used. He, he could <laughs> yeah. see so clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps it's he hadn't been actually able to do any research about the airport. Real. Uh, it's yeah. hard to it's see. Just <laughs> it's just always just like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I can't see the taxiway. It's all blurry. so yeah uh, i guess in this case yeah if he had i i I think that he wanted to he or she wanted to get off the uh, runway as quickly as possible to allow their company jet uh to get on their way as quickly as possible i don't know but uh, they would have had to gone a couple thousand feet or maybe a thousand feet longer down the runway to get to that turnaround circle we uh, we face the same problem in a lot of um airports uh, around the Caribbean. So uh, they wouldn't have a taxiway that went all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you had someone on the ILS bar or the approach, a lot of the more RMP approaches, mm-hmm. um, behind you, uh, you know, because it takes you know, two or three minutes to get to the end of the runway, go around that dumbbell, taxi all the way back, and then get off the airport. He would probably have to go around. So we would try and break to make the turn off uh, just gotcha. to try and keep the traffic flowing. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it's time, really. Time yeah. and waste of time money. Time is money. Exactly. Yeah. And who are you calling a dumbbell, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I take offense. Yeah. Oh, well, you. You know who to email. Yeah. Uh, seven, Sam. 
uh, APG greetings, like Christmas greetings, I guess. Uh, I believe it was episode 535 that a listener mentioned Beryl Markham. Her story and life is quite fascinating. She was an acquaintance of Karen Blixen of Out of Africa fame. Not flame. The character Felicity, played by Suzanne Hamilton in the movie, is based on Markham. Her flight instructor was Denise Hutton, played by Robert Redford. Or Dennis, I guess. Dennis Hutton, played by I Robert so. Redford. Uh, well, she you can was, call him Denise. I'm sure he went on. It depends on you know how he's feeling that day. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Depends whether he's wearing a skirt or <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, optional uh, uniform choices. Yeah. yeah. I, I understand. Uh, she was actually supposed to be on his fatal flight, but she had a premonition and did not go. She was the first person to fly the Atlantic solo nonstop east to west. And her autobiography is titled West with the Night, a book that also covers her childhood and time as a racehorse trainer in Kenya. I will let Ernest Hemingway's words describe the book. Again, this is from Ernest Hemingway. She has written so well and marvelous, marvelously well that I was completely ashamed of myself as a writer. I felt that I was simply a carpenter with words, picking up whatever was furnished on the job and nailing them together and sometimes making an okay pig pen. But she can write rings around all of us who consider ourselves writers. It really is a bloody wonderful book. Wow. That's high praise. A very you better high put praise that book. in the APG library. Ernest Hemingway. Oh, yeah. Good point, Liz. She says we should add that book to the APG library. Maybe it's already there. I don't know. We'll have to take yeah, a look. Anyway, uh, I enjoy listening to your shows as I drive back and forth to work. And this is from Sam Dawson, a recent addition uh, and member of our Coffee Fund cadre. So thank you, Sam. Do appreciate that. Plain tale time. All right. Guess what? It is now time for the plain tale, the old pilot's plain tale this week. Higher, faster. That's what she said. <laughs> the old pilot's plain tales. Higher, faster. It was the unofficial name of the NASA project, but it undoubtedly encapsulated the ultimate aim of the pilots involved with the early X-planes. They were the pioneers who trod the territory beyond the sound barrier, a place no man had ever been before and which had killed many who attempted the journey. It started with the Bell X-1, the design of which was actually conceived in Britain only a year after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. In particular, the Miles Aircraft M52 concept of a variable incidence tailplane was incorporated into Bell's aircraft, which had been battling with the problem of supersonic pitch control. The rocket-powered winged bullet first flew only 42 years after man's first powered flight, an achievement that still astounds me. To think that a toddler around Kitty Hawk, who saw one of the Wright brothers' first flights, could have heard the world's first man-made sonic boom before they reached the ripe old age of 50, it's a true testament to the ability of America's finest minds and the bravery of their greatest pilots. 
The X1, though, was only the start of a series of remarkable experimental X-planes, and they continue to astound the world to this day with their blended bodies, hypersonic scramjets, or active aeroelastic wings. In this tale, I want to tell you about only one, an aircraft that came about halfway through the list, but achieved records that no other X-series aircraft has bettered. Indeed, no aircraft of any name, designation, design, manufacture, technology, or from any country has even come close to. Over the following 55 years, after it took its test pilot, William Knight, to the highest speed ever recorded by a piloted, powered aircraft. Knight had bettered Wright's maximum flying speed of 30 miles an hour by a margin of 4,490 miles an hour, a 150 times improvement. So remarkable was the performance of this aircraft that of the 12 pilots qualified to fly it, Eight met the criteria needed to become astronauts. Whilst the military pilots gained their astronaut wings immediately, the civilian test pilots had to wait a mere 35 years after the last flight of their aircraft before someone got around to awarding them the NASA equivalent. Early X-planes were all about penetrating the previously impenetrable sound barrier, the subject of a previous tale. After Chuck took his glamorous Glenis all the way, a second generation of the X-1 was designed to achieve speeds double the speed of sound and altitudes in excess of 90,000 feet. Despite the success of the first X-1, future versions were troubled by a series of explosions. An explosion in the X-1A ruptured the X-plane's liquid oxygen tank and the aircraft had to be jettisoned. The X-1-2 and the X-1-3 were both lost to explosions during refuelling. In August 1953, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Kendall, otherwise known as Pete Everest, was carried to altitude attached to the belly of the mothership Boeing Superfortress to fly the X-1D under power for the first time when he noticed that the X-1's nitrogen pressure was dropping. The nitrogen was used to push the mix of ethyl alcohol and liquid oxygen fuel into the XLR-11 rocket engine built by Reaction Motors Incorporated and affectionately known as Black Betsy, although many preferred to call it the Belching Black Bastard. Without sufficient nitrogen pressure, the flight was cancelled and Pete tried to jettison the rocket fuel so that a safe landing could be made. There was an internal explosion in the back of the X-1, and fearing for the safety of the mothership and its crew, Everest abandoned the machine, clambering back up into the bomber. The test aircraft was jettisoned, and it fell into the desert below, exploding on impact. The investigation discovered that the leather gaskets used in the fuel lines and tanks, a material which truly brings to mind the era of technology we're recalling, 
have been treated with TCP, a chemical which could ignite liquid oxygen. The gaskets were replaced, but several aircraft had been lost, a pilot injured, and two lives forfeit. The X-2 was designed to take the project forward, improving on the original straight, thin-wing layout of the X-1s by employing swept wings, more advanced materials, and controls which would give it improved performance. Twice, X-1 aircraft had succumbed to inertia cross-coupling which came close to disaster and would nearly kill Chuck Yeager. He had just reached Mach 2.44 at over 74,000 feet when the X-1A began to roll left. He countered with right aileron and rudder and was now rolling right when the little machine snapped out of control, tumbling end over end. The violence of the manoeuvre smashed Jaeger's head against the cockpit and he was knocked unconscious. The X-1 fell 50,000 feet towards the desert below before he came to groggy and disorientated, but awake enough to effect a safe landing back at Edwards. This form of divergence was known about in theory, but Jaeger was the first to ever encounter it in flight. The Bell X-2 would power itself into the record books, eventually reaching a height of over 126,000 feet and a speed of Mach 3.2, over 2,000 miles an hour. Apart from the change in aerodynamic design, the X-2 pioneered throttleable rocket motors, something that was developed from the German ME-163 Comet technology, and was constructed from stainless steel and a copper-nickel alloy. It achieved some incredible milestones, but at a terrible cost. Following a test glide flight, Bell test pilot Skip Ziegler was killed along with Frank Walco, a member of the B-50 mothership crew, during a captive test when the X-2's liquid oxygen system exploded. The X-plane was jettisoned and lost into Lake Ontario, whilst the B-50 struggled on to an emergency landing. It never flew again. When it did fly, the X-2 lived up to its potential, but not without concerns. Pete Everest reported that the flight controls weren't sufficiently effective, giving only marginal control. The supersonic movement of the centre of pressure was a problem, as was the lack of rigidity of the fin, and studies indicated that stability would be a problem as the aircraft approached Mach 3. Mel Apt was at the controls for the first time when the X-2 exceeded Mach 3. He had followed the brief flight path flawlessly, but while still above Mach 3 he attempted to turn his aircraft and lost control. Inertia cross-coupling had again caused a test aircraft to tumble end over end, and Apt found himself trying to cope with three sequential problems, control coupling, inertia roll coupling, and supersonic spinning. His attempts to recover from the spin were hampered by the rudder lock which was still engaged. 
Apt tried to abandon the aircraft by firing the ejection capsule, which was only equipped with a small stabilising drogue, but he failed to climb out and use his personal parachute before he hit the ground. Apt had taken his machine to a speed where its stability had become severely compromised, and many of his supervisors blamed themselves for not firmly laying down a specific maximum speed for the test flight that might have kept him safe. The capability of the ejection capsule was also criticised, some declaring it woefully inadequate. Another NACA research pilot, Scott Crossfield, bluntly described it as a way to commit suicide to keep from getting killed. This tragic crash terminated the program before NACA could commence detailed flight research with the aircraft. The search for answers to many of the riddles of high Mach flight had to be postponed until the arrival, three years later, of the most advanced of all the experimental rocket aircraft, the North American X-15. The X-15 was a hypersonic rocket-powered aircraft that is one capable of exceeding Mach 5 and ranked supreme amongst piloted rocket-powered aircraft becoming the world's first operational space plane. Remarkably, it was based on a concept study from a German artillery officer who fought in both world wars and was a leader of the Nazi V-2 rocket program and other projects at Pienemund, Walter Dornberger. Proposals for the airframe were published in 1954 and the engine in 1955, and Scott Crossfield first took it airborne in the summer of 1959. Like previous X-planes, it was designed to be dropped from a mothership, in this case from one of two B-52 stratofortresses, named the High and Mighty One and Bulls 8. The X-15's design was radical, as one might expect from a hypersonic-capable aircraft. The fuselage was a long cylinder with wedge-shaped fairings either side that flattened its appearance from which a pair of stubby, trapezoidal wings protruded about two-thirds back. The fairings housed control cables, hydraulic lines, fuel plumbing and wiring that couldn't be squeezed into the fuselage, since it was crammed with two huge tanks of propellant. The side fairings provided well over 50% of the total lift, particularly at supersonic speeds, with the wings doing most of their work during launch and landing. The tail section was a cruciform of four surfaces. The vertical tail sections extended above and below the fuselage and were both huge. They amounted to 60% of the wing area, and unusually they were formed into fat wedge shapes, which gave them good stability in the hypersonic speed range, but enormous amounts of drag at lower speeds. In addition, side panels could be extended to aid stability and help control speed. The upper vertical tail also comprised an all-moving rudder, and since the aircraft landed on short skids, the lower one was jettisoned for landing, coming down on a small parachute. 
either side were all moving horizontal stabilizers that could move in unison to pitch and twist individually to roll the aircraft. Like systems developed for some of the X-1 aircraft, the X-15 needed reaction controls to keep it correctly orientated when there was insufficient air for the aerodynamic controls to operate. The reaction jets harnessed an ancient form of energy, steam, Superheated steam was created from the decomposition of hydrogen peroxide. This required a complicated system of control for the pilot, giving him three different joysticks to use. The center stick was a normal one, used when there was sufficient air for the machine to fly conventionally. The left stick operated the reaction control system in manual as opposed to when the automatic inputs were used. And the right-hand stick was used when under high G-loads. One of the greatest goals of the project was to discover how to transition from aerodynamic to reaction control and back again in this vast unexplored flight regime. There was an alternative setup which combined and simplified all three sticks into one. Other features included heated windshields to prevent icing and a forward facing headrest for periods of intense deceleration. The ejection seats were never used through the program, which was remarkably safe considering the longevity of it, the novel design and exotic materials used, and, of course, the hostile environment the X-15 was regularly taken into. In theory, it could be used up to Mach 4, 2,800 miles an hour and 120,000 feet. After ejection, the seat was designed to deploy fins which would stabilise it until it had fallen to a safe speed and altitude when the main parachute could be used. To keep the pilot alive during this fall, they wore specially designed and developed spacesuits that could be pressurised with nitrogen whilst the pilot was fed a separate supply of oxygen. By now, the United States had eight years of experience developing rocket engines and Reaction Motors Incorporated were given the task of developing the XLR-99 engine capable of producing 600,000 horsepower, around 450,000 kilowatts of thrust. Their previous engines had safely conducted some 384 flights, so they were well-placed to develop a rocket that would consume fuel at the rate of 13,000 pounds at 6,000 kilograms a minute. At full power, the XLR-99 would accelerate the X-15 at 4G, adding 90 miles an hour every second. To cope with the environment the X-15 was expected to operate in, its manufacturer, North American, had to use exotic materials such as titanium and a nickel-chrome alloy known as Inconel X, which could withstand much greater temperatures but had a big weight penalty. This led to them developing machining and production techniques that would become standard throughout the aerospace industry. 
The cabin was made from an aluminium shell and isolated from the outer structure to keep it from melting. In stages, the test pilots took the X-15 into places where vital data could be recorded. The aircraft returned benchmark hypersonic data for aircraft performance, stability and control, materials, shock interaction, hypersonic turbulent boundary layer, skin friction, reaction control jet function, aerodynamic heating and heat transfer. Experiments ranging from astronomy to micrometeorite collection were conducted, and they also included tests of horizon definition and proposed insulation that bore fruit in the navigation equipment and thermal protection used on Saturn launch vehicles in the Apollo program, which dispatched 12 astronauts to the moon and back. Among the 12 was Neil Armstrong, the first human to step on the moon's surface, and a former X-15 pilot who also flew many other research aircraft at the Flight Research Centre. Doctors learned that the heart rates of X-15 pilots ranged from 145 to 185 beats per minute during flight. This greatly exceeded the normal 70 to 80 beats per minute experienced on test missions for other aircraft. The know-how gained by the many teams in government and industry were a national asset and ensured the success of the space program. Sadly, this didn't all occur without loss. In 1967, during re-entry, Major Michael Adams, X-15-3, yawed off heading by about 15 degrees, causing the airframe to enter a Mach 5 hypersonic spin, oscillating violently as the aerodynamic forces increased. He experienced more than 15G positive and negative, and at least 8G laterally, which exceeded the design strength of the aircraft, and it broke up at 60,000 feet, scattering wreckage across 50 square miles, 130 square kilometres. Major Adams was killed and posthumously awarded Air Force astronaut wings for his final flight, which had reached an altitude of 50.4 miles, 81.1 kilometers. And in 1991, his name was added to the Astronaut Memorial. In 2004, a monument was erected at the very spot where the cockpit of his aircraft came to rest, near Johannesburg in California. Pretty amazing stuff. That's Absolutely, Jeff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, very hard to understand how good they were at doing it uh, back in the 50s and 60s because they made such enormous leaps in uh, understanding uh, and flying ability to achieve those speeds and altitudes when they were breaking out of uh, the atmosphere into space. 
uh, learning so much. Uh, you know, that, that learning curve just seemed to flatten a bit. Uh, and, you know, America lost the impetus uh, that allowed the Soviets to get into space first. Um, but, um, you know, they, they were doing quite remarkable things. And I, I make the point, the technology in material was having to try to keep up with the demands of the aircraft such that, you know, you still, I was amazed when I found out that some of the problems with the uh, rocket fuel systems were caused because they were using leather gaskets. I'm going, what? <laughs> leather gaskets? Wow. Because the technology hadn't improved beyond that to find the material that uh, they could substitute that with that was suitable at the time. Uh, it really was the cutting edge. And it must have been so exciting to be part of that. And, of course, incredibly dangerous. They lost so many pilots. Dangerous. But like you said in the uh, the comments, I think, you know, it, that kind of those great steps in in technology and knowledge, they come with, you know, taking great risk. I don't think without taking the risk, you can have those types of leaps and bounds be made. Yeah, very much so. Uh, and those young men, because most of them were very young men who uh, were the test pilots of the day, um, you know, they, and mainly the military ones, of course, uh, went up with very little uh, remuneration I'm sure we've all seen the movie um, Right Stuff, and uh, it starts off with the, the kind of story of uh, Jaeger breaking the sound barrier and the Bell executives discussing the fact that uh, they weren't going to have to pay him because no, he was on a lieutenant's pay. Remarkable, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, just a kind of a personal note, um, my father worked for um, North American and before it became North American Rockwell and North American um, is the company that made the X-15 and the uh, test pilot that you were talking about, Scott, or one of them, Scott Crossfield. Uh, somehow my dad knew him and uh, Scott Crossfield had, had um, penned a book called uh, uh, something about another dawn, always another dawn, I think is the name of his book. And um, I still have the book that my uh, that was signed and a little note uh, to me uh, in the forward of the well, not the forward but the on the beginning one of the first pages of the book uh, signed by Scott Crossfield and and written specifically to my dad's son who is me so pretty cool wow what a great yeah, memento cool. to have Jeff that's amazing yeah uh, I don't believe it's still in print Liz. Um, in fact, I did a quick search, uh, while I was listening to, uh, the plane tale. In fact, that may have been the uh, sound that you heard, uh, during the beginning part of the, uh, sorry about that, the, uh, plane tale. Um, I, I thought my phone was far enough away from anything that might pick up that, uh, obnoxious sound that phones sometimes make. Uh, but apparently not. Anyway, uh, it looks like you can get it on like Abe's books and some of these other places for about $225. But, uh, oh, for yeah. the the low low price of, and I'll be this. happy to sell mine for ten thousand if anybody's interested. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> if I can find Wait it, I think it's in the uh, it's in a box yeah. in my storage unit. I I hope. <laughs> <laughs> what if it's worth that? Yes, yeah, definitely hope. Yeah, no, it's it's just worth uh, just the nostalgic um, value for me. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Interestingly, the X planes still exist. Of course, they 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 still flying right now because uh, um, the uh, quiet boom, the quiet supersonic airplane they're trying to develop is uh, part of uh, the NASA's X plane program. Uh, they've got uh, F-18s doing air elastic wing experiments. So it presses forward, not in the same way. Uh, and you know, you kind of, I kind of feel a bit. Um, sad that the the records achieved by the X fifteen way back then have still yet to be broken. And I'm going, what you mean we haven't they built an aeroplane that can go faster than that? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. It is. Thirty five minutes left, Jeff. Thirty five okay. minutes. Thank you, Liz. Um number eight. Yeah, number eight. Uh this is uh from Sam. He says, hello, crew. I found this clip from an old VHS tape I have about airline disasters. Now, a lot of people listening to our show is going to go, a VHS tape? What the what the heck is that? Over my shoulder here. <laughs> yeah, Steph knows. <laughs> I have a VCR player that plays VHS yeah. tapes. And there's a What's little back there that's got Vertical and horizontally stabilized. There's Does it? VHS tapes in there. I have no idea. No, I don't think so. <laughs> that doesn't sound it's right. Very, very hairy system. <laughs> Maybe our somebody in our chat room can it stands look that for up. Video home system. Video home system. Oh. That makes oh, more there sense. you go. Yes. Fair and, enough. What did uh, Betamax stand for? Oh, uh, VCR is a video something recorder, video cassette, video cassette recorder. recorder. Yeah, I knew that. But not VHS. Anyway. Um, home system. Anyway, uh, Sam uh, says that uh, another good reason for having two pilots in the cockpit, um, O'Leary and others. I'm not really sure what he means. No, Enjoy he's, your day. He's calling them out. Oh, O'Leary of Ryanair Ryan yeah. to cut down to one pilot. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So do you have this video teed up there, Jeff? Yeah, I think I do, Liz. Uh, here we go. And this is the video that clip that he sent from his old VHS tape. By designing the pilot out of the cockpit. This is the first fully automated plane flown by a computer. Oh, this is that stupid air display. <laughs> I've done a uh, I've done a whole plain tale about the reasons for this crash. Yes, yeah. so that's why we're going to have you address <laughs> Sam's concern. And uh, I, I don't. Well, can think- I refer Sam to the plain tale I did write? Let me find it. it in I'll find great it. Detail. Okay, Liz is going to look it up and uh, let let uh, us know what he basically uh, flew the airplane with the throttles at idle. Uh, and uh, he hadn't done sufficient site um, examination. He broke the company rules for uh, minimum height. When he tried to spool up the engines, when he realized it had gone too far down the airfield and was approaching these trees, because they'd been idle for so long, it took an age for the engines to spool up and give him the thrust he needed to climb away. It had nothing to do with fly-by-wire or anything else, uh, despite the fact operations. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, was, there, were two, there were two pilots there, so that yeah. argument yeah, for a reason for not having two pilots, well, there were two pilots <laughs> in the cockpit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the first officer didn't know much about what was going on because he got very little briefing from the captain. The captain uh, continued uh, uh, right up until... 
you know, the very end of all the inquiries to insist that there was something wrong with the airplane. But, you know, Airbus and all the technical experts uh, shut him down in flames, I'm afraid. Yeah, that was Air France Flight 296 Quebec, uh, a yeah, chartered flight. Yeah, and yeah. Liz is still looking Because it was the up. worst possible time. He was the most experienced uh, fly-by-wire Airbus uh, the A320 pilot in mm. existence. He didn't have a huge amount of experience because the airplane was very new. Yeah. But he was the most experienced one, and he just made a mess of a fly pass. It was a simple, straight and level fly pass, way mm -hmm. too low, and carried on way too long with the throttles at idle. I think it was the one where it called A320, and he uh, goes into that crash as well. Okay, uh, Liz is um, saying she thinks it's the one that's entitled A320. Um, not what sure. Did I say? It says no. uh, that may be what you said. Uh, no, I, the title of your plane tale. That's what she's trying. Oh right, to okay. Right I, I don't know. On, on I APG four eighteen. Uh, APG four eighteen. The A320. Um, that okay. may have been the one where you talked about this uh, flight yeah. 296. I, I covered a lot of aspects of uh, right. the A320, trying yeah. to put to bed some of the um, myths that surround the A320. And from what I, by one. I have, I'll put also a link in the in the show notes to the, um, I think it's a Wikipedia, yeah, it's a Wikipedia article on this and the controversy. Um, you know, Nick mm. mentioned that the captain, you know, you know basically claimed all along that it wasn't a pilot error it was a it was an airplane yep. automation he also error. claimed that the government and the airline sorry the manufacturer colluded to try and blame him when it wasn't his fault right um so you just have to you yeah know, look at the facts and decide for yourself a bunch of people died in that one and uh yeah one of the contributing but also a bunch of people survived which three, is remarkable yeah. Oh, just yeah. three people. Okay. I thought there were more than that. Yeah. And okay. one of the reasons for the high survival rate was put down to the fact that uh, because it could be flown so close to uh, Alpha Max, the um, yeah the A320 cushioned the impact into the trees. Uh, okay. Very interesting. Um, de definitely worth a watch of uh, that plane tail, the A320 on episode 418. Uh, and also... Uh, a read of the Wikipedia article concerning it. Oh. All right. Which is not as good, of course, as the plain tale. <laughs> um, continuing on, I think I can play some. Um, yeah, Texas Anlashock was here a little while ago. I don't oh, know Texas Anlashock was here in the chat room a while ago. I don't know if you're still here or not, sir, but uh, he writes, Dear Captain Jeff and APG crew, first, uh, first off, uh, you didn't play that video all the way to the end. Well, now, uh, well, by now, I'm sure everyone who cares has gone and watched it in its entirety. What is he talking about? He's the. It's the one where the the WestJet guys were. Saying oh, the WestJet. Okay. Um, after the WestJet pilots had had their send off flight for the seven three seven two hundred, which had them zooming around, making low passes, and whooping and hollering, "Yeehaw!" Someone gets on the radio after they land, and he said, uh, "An official sounding voice tower. This is Air Canada eight sixty five. Can I do that?" <laughs> well you can you know it's all about choices you know you may yeah. not be allowed yeah, to there are a lot of canadians wear cowboy hats yeah yeah, yeah we, they have real cowboys in canada and uh, west jets based uh, in Alberta. calgary and yeah. cowgirls yeah and cowgirls and cow people mm -hmm. um, i'm not one on I mean, just cows. <laughs> and cows 
<laughs> that aren't people. Okay, uh, on to more serious stuff. I'm seeing a lot of news pop up about the ES-30 electric hybrid aircraft. They have apparently already secured orders from uh, SAS and Air Canada. I find myself wondering if those orders are in a similar vein as United and American ordering the supersonic overture jet. As it has been suggested, those orders are basically glorified publicity stunts. The ES-30 has a development timeline of only five years, which seems rather short to me, and I'm certain there will be delays and setbacks just like there have been with the overture. I tend to be rather skeptical of all the electric stuff coming out, and the comments of one video I saw about this plane expressed similarly dubious opinions about the range of the aircraft, how long the batteries will last with repeated chargings, whether the electrical grid can handle them in large numbers, etc., etc., and correct me if I'm wrong, but I recall main man Micah running the numbers on all this and basically concluding that these electrical vehicles are not actually carbon neutral, at least not to the extent all the publicity makes them out to be. Finally, stumbled onto a video that talks about Top Aces, the company being contracted as uh, to fly as an aggressor squadron in military training exercises. I think the topic has come up a couple of times in the show, and here they are, a flight of F-16s, formerly of the Israeli Air Force. Just thought I'd share that. And we have a little, um, we'll play a little bit of this video. And you can watch the whole, that's kind of loud, isn't it? Here, let me turn that down. They were flying with the aggressors at top bases. Big one, targeted nose, 32 miles, 35,000. Big one, hostile there. Big one, target What's up, Motor? How you doing? You. This Welcome is great. To top bases. Thank you. I got some badges for you, but we'll get in and we'll get started right away. Okay, let's do it. Okay, let's drink some beers. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to stick the badges on first. Cheers to that. Um. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so much to say. Um, but I mean, I'm that's all you need to become a fighter pilot. Yeah. Just a few so. badges. Badges. Yeah. Something official. And beer. Yeah. Badges and beer. Badges and beer. Badges and beer. Mm. Ah, show title. <laughs> I like possibly. it. Okay. Um, but anyway, uh, so it's quite, um, well, a lengthy video there. I'm not sure how long it was. I forgot to look. But it's an interesting one. So we'll have all of not that. Not sure how long it is. That's what you said. show notes. Oh, Liz. Stop it. And uh, let's see. Let's continue to move Number on. Number 10. Oh, this is a good one. <laughs> I feel like everyone has their own opinions on this. <laughs> yeah, Always. and I, I'm glad you're here, Steph. Uh-huh. Uh, this is from Tim Van Ram. You ever heard of him? He was in the chat yeah. room, too. Yeah, he was here with us earlier, but I don't know if he's still here or not. Um, anyway, I'm sharing an article that reports on a J.D. Power survey of customer satisfaction at large airports in the U.S. I'm, I, I found the get no ranking by passengers interesting and hope all of you do as well. He's still here. He's still here. Good. Yeah. And I will include Liz singing, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> that was really bad. <laughs> um, in, in, in the podcast. Okay. So this is an article link that he gave uh, from CNN.com. Uh, J.D. Power, the most and least satisfying North American airports for 2020. Uh, CNN travel. Um, air travel volume is up. 
and passenger satisfaction is down. This comes as no surprise to anyone who has passed through an airport over the summer. The J.D. Power 2022 North American Airport Satisfaction Study, released Wednesday, shows overall satisfaction down 25 points on a 1,000-point scale from the 2021 score. Now, I'd like to stop here for just a moment. 25 points out of that 1,000 points? That's not a lot, yeah, percentage-wise, is it? Yeah, that does seem pretty insignificant. It's like 2.5%, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If I did my math right, my maths. The scale goes to 1,000. What was the previous score? They went to 11. Um, <laughs> it went to 11. Oh, well, actually, the um, overall satisfaction score was 777. Okay, so, so yeah, what's pretty, 25 divided still, by 777? <laughs> Not much. No, okay, maybe exactly. more like 3 or 4%. Anyway, uh, the overall satisfaction, as, just, as Nick just mentioned, uh, 777. U.S. passenger volume is nearing pre-pandemic levels. On Sunday, the U.S. Transportation Security Administration uh, TSA screened 2,371,992 passengers at airport checkpoints. That figure is 94% of the same weekday in 2019. But travelers are met with fewer flights, more crowded terminals, and limited food and beverage options. Yeah, that's for sure, because they're having a tough time getting people to come back to work in these concessions at the airports great uh, where they're not really being paid a heck of a lot. And um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, let's look and see what I'm very they... proud. It makes me proud. You may. Uh, why are you proud, Liz? You'll see. Well, okay. Let's see the top five scorers. Toronto's not there. I don't know. What that on would be, Liz, a one thousand point scale for mega airport satisfaction. Mega Minneapolis St. <laughs> Paul uh, with a score of eight hundred. Make Europe great again, airports. Mm. Mega. Oh, uh, no. Mega. I don't think that's it. Make Europe great Actually, again. I, can, okay. I have the actual J.D. Power um, <laughs> report here, and I can just tell you all of them in order. Oh, the well, mega well, go for it. Sure. Steph. So yeah. at the top, Minneapolis-St. Paul, San Francisco, Detroit, Metropolitan Wayne County, JFK, Harry Reid, so Las Vegas, Orlando International, and then Hartsfield-Jackson, Atlanta, Dallas-Fort Worth, Miami International, Charlotte Douglas, solidly in the middle at the segment average, um, that's about where I'd put it. To be fair. It's, an, it's average. It's, a, it's an average. <laughs> yeah. It's a segment um, average. 769 points out of a thousand. So we, okay. Charlotte got 768. Um, mm. Phoenix Sky Harbor, Fort Lauderdale, Seattle, Tacoma, Denver, George Bush, George Bush International. And then the bottom five. Yeah. Sorry, Here we come. Yay. Toronto Pearson, yes. Boston Logan, yes. LAX, O'Hare, and Newark Liberty. Yeah. But again, to be well, I've fair, operated into oh, one, two, three, Canada. four of those. <laughs> Liz is saying, I'm, "Oh, Canada. in the four. <laughs> Well, you know, but seriously, though, I mean, the top I mean, one was eight hundred. Really, the top right? one was eight hundred. The bottom one was seven nineteen. That's not a heck of a lot of. No, uh, that's not a big spread, is it? That's the no. mega airports, and then there's large airports, which mm-hmm. I don't know. I think some of these are just as big as the other airports. <laughs> Um, and then medium airports. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so do, so do what's we have- the worst <laughs> airport in the whole of America? The worst one t- appears to be well, of all these ones that were surveyed, it was Newark Liberty had the lowest score. 
Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Uh. Yeah. No, I'm <laughs> not. Uh, yeah, fair enough. But I think it depends, you know, like the, the, the airport that has the, I mean, the airline that has the greatest presence at Newark Liberty is United. United. And I've never been, you know, I've never been to any of their terminals. I've always been in the terminal where Acme and a couple of other airlines uh, park. The good airlines. Fancy. Yeah, the good airlines. Thanks, Liz. Yeah, um, yeah we anyway. used to park near you guys. Yeah, the one, one terminal over, I believe. I, I remember seeing. The, well, uh, we were on the, on the finger next door. If the you Sky Team members? Sky Team member. Now a, a Sky Team member. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. So what in your personal, uh, not the J.D. Power in survey, my, yeah. but in the uh, Steph. Um, S.J. S.J. Plummer. S.J. Plummer. S.J. Plummer <laughs> survey. What would be your top, your favorite airport? Oh, man. Favorite airport? Salt Lake City. Kind of hard because so the I think the biggest takeaway is that most of them are pretty similar, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's hard to the things that make one airport stand out over another in my mind are just ease of use, basically. Mm -hmm. So which one can I get through security the fastest at? Get out of the airport the fastest at and beyond my like I I really try not to spend a lot of time in the airport. Well, you really Um, have a different. Judging mindset, yeah. Uh, my scale is completely. You, you sound up. just like me, Steph. Actually, that's all I wanted to do. <laughs> all I want to know is how quickly can I <laughs> get, get in, get the out, stop messing and about, get out of the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can tell you, let's just go back through my most recent several trips here. Okay. Um, Charlotte was a big loser on um, ease of entry into the airport because they're doing uh, t- uh, construction, which they've been doing for the past 10 years and will probably be doing for the next like 30 years. Um, and they had part of the um, – basically, as you get into the airport, there's – you know, the roadway splits into an upper and lower deck for arrivals and departures or departures and arrivals. They had the upper roadway um, closed entirely, thus forcing everyone into two lanes. And everything was backed up for about a mile in all directions from the airport, which was terrible. <laughs> all three weekends in a row that I traveled to the airport. It was only supposed to go on for two weeks. But – there you have it. Hey, hey, um, Steph's still going to be here next I, week, yeah, so keep it I going. I, like, just, <laughs> and I don't know what happened to all the airport parking. There's no one working at the airport anymore, <laughs> but there's no parking left either. Like, the parking's always all taken up. You have to make, like, a reservation, and then you get uh, screwed if you don't. Um, so that's no good. But I do give Charlotte a win on never having long wait lines for security. And that is in big contrast to both Toronto and Heathrow, which were terrible. Um Heathrow was the worst of the airports I visited recently. Um, and any airport in the United States that has clear is a win. So that really has nothing to do with airports and just the um, company clear. So there you have it. Uh, Liz and I um, got to experience, um, was it, it was Toronto, wasn't it, Liz, that we went through? Where was it? No, we no, went through that. Oh, Heathrow. Heathrow. Yeah. Heathrow's. Um, well, it may have been just our timing was really good, but we when we came in from Atlanta, uh, it, we didn't even see a person. It was like, I've never had I've never had trouble exiting Heathrow. Okay, it's just going. That's always way. fine. Yeah, and usually it's fine going in, except I think just with recent staffing issues, they've had trouble uh, like some other could be, could airports. Be. And I I found out I could have used um, mm-hmm. one of my American Express credit card benefits to use the fast track lane, mm-hmm. but I was traveling with someone who did not have that benefit, and we had so much time it didn't even make sense to 
Yeah. I, I feel I must interject here. Okay. At least at Pearson, you can pre-clear U.S. customs. And so you get to the states, you're domestic. That's so true. you don't have to do that. True. I, I, I will. I will say that. Bonus. Yes. And well, it's on me. If you I don't want to, to go to America, my, my Google. <laughs> and you're screwed. You're screwed. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <I'm falling apart. laughs> oh my. Oh. Okay. Um, um, there you have it. I I didn't have any trouble at um, Chicago O'Hare, and they had yeah. a, and the the American Lounge is very nice. Good. All right. Well, we Americans know how you to have lounge. to be American <laughs> I, to use the American know. Lounge. Yes. Did they say did, Yahoo um, in the lounge? <laughs> I do have complaints about the new Salt Lake City Airport. Mm-hmm. There's just too much walking. Oh. I like to well, move and walk and do things, but. Yeah, for you? Gosh for darn somebody it. that runs marathons? Gosh darn on. it. Well, but I mean, not so much for me, but man, I can't imagine if I had some sort of mobility issue. Yeah. It's a lot of walking. Yeah. Well, it I'm will get better since, with more yeah. with more um, uh, newer walkways that they're planning to open, like under the um, taxiways. But those aren't opening for like another year and a half. So, mm. Mm. food <sighs> and beverage is good at Salt Lake, though. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember back in the '90s when they first introduced uh, frozen yogurt. Uh, they had a froyo a, fro- a frozen yogurt. Yeah, um, the country's best yogurt. TC. It used to be called the country's best yogurt, I think. TCBY. But then I think they changed it to mean something different. Anyway, have we strayed off the subject? We have. We have. We're we have definitely We're talking, off the Welcome to Welcome to Froyo <laughs> Podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, let's. So anyway, I don't know. Try. I I these these. Well, let's go back to Tim's feedback because I know everyone okay. wants to like. Hate on airports and security and lines and everything else. And um, it's kind of one of those things where they're all just kind of the worst in their own way. You just have to decide which is the least worst. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're going to just do – we're getting awfully close, aren't we, Liz? Let's, yeah, let's, um, let's just do Brent's funny ones. Like well, okay, I'm going to do the Brent, the funny one from Brent, but also I'd like to quickly do Andy's. Okay, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. 12. Yeah, number 12. Hi, Captain Jeff and crew. I still owe you some Rheingeists IPAs. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You do. Uh, Captain Jeff, I'm going to want, of course, it's really kind of my fault. He brought them up to uh, Oshkosh and I left before we were able to meet up. Um, so... Anyway, this question is probably more for Captain Nick, as the plane actually has software, or his plane. Uh, The question is, do airline pilots have any concern about firmware updates or software updates to various aircraft systems? I assume that is all taken care of overnight by maintenance, but is this something you have to watch for to make sure they did it? Uh, Do you remember a time an aircraft was grounded for software issues? Not the Max 8, but something more routine. How computer literate do you have to be to troubleshoot a flight computer? In the audiovisual industry, a new firmware update can be a big deal, especially if it's security related. Firmware updates can also break entire systems if not fully vetted. Thank you for the show. Andy. Okay, Captain Nick, what says you? Do you get down there with Uh, your uh, little... uh, (laughs) You know your your tools and and take things apart and you know. Oh, I do. Yeah, I do lots of that. Yeah. Um, no, the uh, the aircraft software standard was always written up in the tech log, um, and a lot of it 
was done obviously um, without really uh, us knowing about it. Um, you had to go and read into the the technical side of the the tech log to see what software standard you'd actually achieved. Most of the changes were very minor uh, and happened, you know, they were seamless. So if you had to change the flight control laws, um, it, you know, there was very rarely was there anything major. It was always, you know, just a little tweak and you barely knew about it. Um, uh, the the regular updates were just in the data that you had. So um, if a new airway had been put in, then uh, you obviously needed to update the navigation uh, software so that if you tried to type in your flight plan and it hadn't been updated, you typed in an airway name that didn't exist, uh, that wouldn't be recognized by the by the computer, then uh, obviously there was that was something of a problem. Uh, but you, there were ways getting around that, but uh, that happened on a regular basis. So, you know, um, the engineers did that you know, probably monthly at least, and there was a regular cycle of those updates. Um, well, there were some software issues. Uh, so, for example, I mean, everything was driven by software. So we used to have an issue with uh, dead radios. So uh, radios would suddenly go deaf and you would stop hearing anything. on, And you wouldn't realize because often legs are very quiet, you know, middle of the night over Europe on a long direct routing uh, or a long distance between waypoints. You wouldn't be making any reports. You'd be radar identified. You wouldn't necessarily hear anything. And then after, say, like 15 minutes, you go, I haven't heard anything on the radio for a while. And what's that jet and, doing over uh, there on the left wing? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, the the software would have uh, failed on the radio, and the radio would have muted itself. So uh, you know, there was a time when we used to have to uh, cycle the radios off and on uh, regularly if we suspected that was a problem. But you know, they were generally speaking uh, fixed pretty quickly. Um, th the layouts of instruments pretty much the same layouts of the navigation um, uh, data, you know, sometimes would change. You find a new thing, but uh, often we'd be uh, get a chance to look at it in the sim before it came into the aircraft. So um, they're incredibly well vetted, but we were always um, uh, encouraged to report any uh, software glitches we spotted. And the worst was usually um, in the navigation uh, equipment, since that was the one that was usually tinkered with more than anything else in the airplane. Uh, you know, you needed uh, the rest of the aircraft software was, uh, generally speaking, uh, you know, fixed by the manufacturer and had very little wrong with it and very little to do with it. Yeah. The only thing that um, came to mind for me, not so much for aircraft systems, but especially for um, GA flying a lot of the um, GPS systems that are IFR certified, you have to have um, uh, the database has to be current in order to be able to fly approaches. So um, you have to make sure that that's, that software gets updated uh, when it's supposed to. And there's some caveats on some of that stuff, but I'm not going to get into it. But basically the, the database must be current, which makes good sense. I thought for sure that 
Nick was going to talk about that time with the Airbus fleet that they got, they did an update or firmware or whatever. And then it just basically reversed all the controls. It was a little crazy <laughs> for a while. It well, was, now I, I just, day, upside down yeah, day I just, Airbus world. I just changed hand, the hands I flew with. I, I flew like this with <laughs> okay. this hand on the throttles and this hand on the stick. And, and upside down, worked. right? Like, not- yeah, yeah. Upside down and inside out. It worked fine. So that wasn't a problem for me. Okay. But, how, uh, yeah. Could you show me how you did that again? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Um, Number yeah, fourteen. I feel like doing that. We're going to end uh, with uh, item number fourteen um, from who? Uh, Brent. Brent. Uh, he sent us in a funny. And he says, this is for a laugh, Brent. And, of course, it's our favorite uh, cartoonist. Gary Larson. Gary Larson. I'm afraid we're going to ha- – okay, we're looking at the uh, – obviously, the ones that we always love to cover here on the show are the uh, airplane-related ones. And we're seeing head-on to this big, giant cockpit. Looks like it could be a, some kind of a jumbo jet, like a 747 or a, uh, a Airbus 380. Well, I recognize Rick. Yeah, there you go. go. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to uh, head back, folks. We've got a warning light on up here, and darn if it isn't the big one. (laughs) And, of course, Uh it's a a very, very large – I guess that's a button – Button. It's the button that no one should, the should no press. one should put press. But that's I'm not, the no. PA you don't want to make. <laughs> yeah, it's a PA you it, don't want to make. Yeah, it's the size of the gong that the guy <laughs> exactly. used to bang on the rank <laughs> movies. You know, remember <laughs> yep. Mr. Atlas banging the gong? Uh-huh. What was the name of that? Oh, it was called the Gong Show. Do you remember that stuff? Yeah. And, no, and Alex Liz? Barris. I do know the Gong Show, but I don't uh, remember it, I would say. Oh, okay. Well, Liz and I in the UK. It. Oh, did you too? Okay. Excellent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't called that, but yeah, I, I know the one you mean. Okay. Sweet. All right. Well, that's enough. Let's that's uh, enough end it. And we have some great feedback still remaining to be played and uh, read out. And uh, let don't let any of that stop you, folks, from sending Send us in, in. Yeah. more feedback. And you can do that by going to this address, which is airline pilot guy. Nope. Uh, feedback. Oh. Nope. <laughs> there Please. we go. <laughs> Tell me where you're going. Fe- uh, well, I said email feedback. So feedback at airlinepilotguy.com is our email address for feedback. Is, and the, you can, is the producer having a rebellion? Yeah, I think she's, she's doing that on here. purpose. <laughs> messing me up. Anyway, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just quickly talk about our website, airlinepilotguy.com, where there are all kinds of great things for you to check out. Please go over there, airlinepilotguy.com. And we are also on social media now. Stuff you're on your own. I've forgotten how to do this. It's been so uh-huh. long, gosh darn it! But hey, I think we're on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash/AirlinePilotGuy. You can find our community there. If um, brevity is more your thing, it's Twitter. We're at APG Crew. Find our individual Twitter hand- handles pinned to the top of that page. And we're also APG Crew on Instagram, which I definitely have not updated in any time recent or in the past i didn't even know but we had an instagram we do we do there's we some do. stuff there we most of it's historical followers yeah most of it's historical at this point so just yeah. you know you can you know, put the through. cover right over there sometimes. historical or hysterical yes i was gonna say historical <laughs> or both maybe history where is that i know. i'm just trying to make a little joke 
Hysterical. Hys- yeah. Hysterical. Very hysteria. little. Yeah. Well, thanks. Well, we also are on, um, uh, where is it? Uh, here we go. We're also on Slack. Our uh, wonderful community member, Hillel. Was it? Hello. Can you help us with, with Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. Oh, that's all right. Just come over here and tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right. Thank you very much, Hillel. Jeff, we, Jeff yeah. could you oh. put that slide back up for a second? Sure. Um uh-huh. I think it's time Hillel oh, yeah. washed the foot towel. <laughs> what's what's that now? <laughs> it's time that Hillel washed that that foot towel that he's got in front of the oh, shower. It's it... absolutely minging. Now we're going. It's not just a shadow. I was going to say we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume really it's some that kind of a big black splodge in the middle where his feet are. <laughs> You're saying that's a shadow? I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe we need to I'm talk to I'm beginning to wonder about his hygiene. Yeah. Well, we've been wondering about... He's always about, in the shower. So about, we well, that's that true. Yeah, well, it's be a, could be mold. <laughs> well, Hillel, let us know. Call us and uh, let us know about that uh, bath, bath mat. And uh, with that... Oh, we need to also say a big thank you and a round of applause for... Hooray! Producer Liz Piper in Toronto. My pleasure. Oh, that's so nice to have her there in my ear all the time. Well, most of the time. Anyway, uh, with that, we're going to say thank you again for listening and uh, telling others about our show and sending in reviews to all the places where you download it and all that jazz. And you know, again, if you uh, have a chance to follow us on the social meds and you happen to be around when we're recording live, uh, you owe yourself the opportunity to engage with these wonderful people that are in our live audience each and every week. And with that, we're going to sign off and say, wishing you all clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, buddy. Ta-ta for now. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy 
I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how guy I fly, oh 